Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. Oh, it's December 10th, 2018. It's Chris from Mookie Ghana Harrington, back fresh from an NXT house show here in St. Paul, Minnesota. And my co-host, Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston, you're fresh back from your wrestling career, your cup defense, perhaps, from Erie, Pennsylvania? No, I did not defend the cup in Erie, Pennsylvania. They're, they're, not, they're not very aware of the cup, although some people did comment to me. When I was there, about about the match and all the the whole thing, but no, I went the to the cup Erie. is behind you right now. It is covered. It is festooned. Yes, in Christmas lights. It's festooned. What is festooned? This is the second uh, show in a row that you've used the word festooned. And what does it mean? To be decorative. To be decorated. To to decorate festively. Hmm. I see. So, but it is the, the cup is now wrapped in Christmas lights, as you uh, suggested. I, I do. So I went to the dollar store, of course, got my two dollar string of Christmas lights, and I wrapped the cup in Christmas lights, and it is now, as you say, festooned in multicolored Christmas lights on top of my bookshelf. With ribbons, garlands, or other decorations, mm. balloons, to ornament, to adorn, to decorate, drape, or wreath. Yes, uh, it looks it looks wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I were debating this off air. Can you even defend a cup? If you win a cup, then you you've won this. It's not like you defend your Olympic medal if if you then go on to a tournament after you've won the medal. I think you can wager anything you want to wager. Um, and, wow. and, and as I said, uh, doesn't you know, Tanahashi defend the briefcase? And this is a very similar thing. It's it's a, it's a title shot that you you cash in at some point. And uh, so why can't I defend it? Uh, you got a big Buffalo sign right behind you there. You do a lot of wrestling for ESW, but, uh, can you, can Rochester, you can read that? of course, oh. my hometown, it sounds like you're going to be doing some shows there soon, right? Well, ESW is doing a show in Rochester on, I think it's February 23rd. Yeah. Ooh. So a, if you've uh, just broken up on Valentine's day, come and uh, get your aggression out by coming down and booing the uh, heels vigorously mm-hmm. at, uh, Rochester's, uh, ESW, uh, is it the ESW debut in Rochester? It is a debut. Yeah. Wow, that's mm-hmm. exciting! So that'll be that'll be. You can, cool you can see I went Buffalo to the NXT thing. show last night. Oh, okay. Uh, in St. Paul at the Roy Wilkins Auditorium. Ooh, how many people were there? Uh, you know, so at the end of the show, um, uh, Champa got on the mic and Champa gave a promo that included the phrase "numbers matter," and I, I yelled back at him, "You're right, sir. <laughs> You're correct." And because he, he specifically said in his promo, "We drew 600 people more than we did last time." Wow. Uh, which just proves I'm a draw because I was gone last time when, when this happened. Yeah. Uh, which I was pretty amused by. So, so you were, you were in the you front know, row, by the way. I was in the very front row. Yes. I got to think, um, uh, at woke Dave Meltzer, who came to me out of the blue and said, I heard you want to go to the show. I am ill. I cannot use my ticket. Would you like my ticket? And, uh, very graciously, uh, gave me a ticket. And I'd also like to give a shout out to Tone Dog, who, uh, uh, ran into me in the concession area. And I, I was wearing the Mookie hat. Yes. That's uh, how people and, identify uh, you. And immediately said, hey, is that Chris? And uh, we talked through intermission. That was a great time. And uh, he was down from Mankato. So uh, shout out to both those men. But yeah, uh, they said there was 600. So, you know, it could have been almost 1,500 tickets sold. Um, I, I probably would guess the building was maybe more like 1,200, uh, 800 on the floor and a couple hundred in the balconies. Uh, the balcony was not sold out. Um, but the balcony was much more full than a few years ago. We had a show and I went and Riddick Moss, uh, headline to give you an idea of kind of the, the star power we had going at that time. It was a Tommy and uh, Austin Aries were on the show and, and a lot of other really like cool people. Um, 
I, I'm trying to remember whether Nakamura was. He, it's very possible Nakamura was. Um, but, uh, what was, what was remarkable about that one was number one, uh, they called it NXT Minneapolis, even though we were in St. Paul because the show was supposed to be in Minneapolis. And then they realized there was a Vikings game that day. So they moved it like across town. So it was a really weird, like promotional thing because it would be like saying NXT Buffalo, but you're in Rochester. Like it, it would not make sense. Are Minneapolis and, and, and uh, St. Paul really close to each other though? Yes. Yes. It would okay. be more like Tonawanda and Buffalo. Okay. But. For my my sake of argument, okay. uh, we're pretending they're much bigger. Places. What what is this venue usually used for? Um, somebody told me they saw some concerts there, so like LCD sound system played there, and and some other bands. Band. It's an old kind of civic center. It's right by where the hockey arena is and mm-hmm. other things. So it it sits probably two thousand to three thousand. It's mostly just for like little concerts and um, whatnot. Uh, but it, it's a decent venue for for wrestling. Um, somebody said they used to see WCW house shows there back in the nineties. Um, I don't know if the AWA used to run it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in the day, I know they used to run places like the armory, which is where I went and saw a ring of honor show about 12 years ago. But, um, this brings to mind an interesting question. What's, what, what's, what's, what's a bigger business or, and, or what's more popular? What has more zeitgeist WCW in, in the nineties, early nineties, let's say. Yeah. Early nineties or NXT today. Like, what is people more remember bigger? WCW in the nineties? Nah, that's not what I'm asking. <laughs> what's what's more what's more popular in its time? Oh, um, and what's what's WCW ma- in the nineties? Yeah, and and what's making more money in its time? Uh, WCW in the nineties. Okay, you think it's making? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, WCW in the nineties was profitable. It's already beat NXT. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a fun show. It was it opened with um uh. Cassius Ono versus uh, Matt Riddle in a real match, Not just and a, a uh, they squash, went yeah. all out. Uh, mm-hmm. That was really fun. Um, and uh, Riddle Riddle's got incredible charisma and look and pose. Like he was he was the guy that when you saw him, you're just like, wow, this guy definitely main main roster main event. He he's got it. And uh, they had a really good match. It wasn't like a little job match like they did on on the card. Take it was a full thing, and they did. I mean. Uh, Ono kicked out a moonsault in the middle of it, which was pretty awesome. And, uh, it was a, it was a fun match. I, I really enjoyed seeing that up front. And, uh, then we had, uh, Jasmine Duke versus, uh, Candice LeRae, who I refer to as Candice LaRue in my original text, which, uh, uh, was did. a Simpsons reference that people then immediately got on me for. Was um, that an intentional Simpsons reference or an unintentional Simpsons? No, no, well, it was, it's a, you're working on your phone, but you're trying to quickly tweet oh. things out without looking at your phone for too long because you've got some pretty good seats. But you do and then, know um, what her name Marina, is. Marina, whatever her name is, the other horse. Chauffeur? 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 I think. Yeah, yeah. She was like ringside. I think, um, Fear? what had happened is, is Dakota Kai was supposed to be on the tour and she got hurt a couple nights ago. Oh. So I think that impacted it. But, uh, Duke is very tall. I'll say that about her. Mm. Um, she, not as green as I think some people make her out to be. She actually looked pretty good in this match. Maybe, maybe it's because Candace is, is so experienced that she can also walk her through it, but I, I didn't feel like it was a super green match the way that some people have kind of led you to believe that they're, they're really not ready. No, they, they, they had a very, very decent match. Little malarkey, of course. Um, anytime a, a manager was there, there was malarkey. Um, Jor- Jeremy Borash, uh, was at the show taking pictures, doing lots of video stuff, um, at the entrance way, uh, Minnesota boy, but, um, but he was there kind of with the digital camera, kind of like filming little vignettes and things. He wasn't the and ring announcer. Would, 
was he? He wasn't what? He wasn't the ring announcer, was he? No, the ring announcer was some guy from SmackDown who I do not know, but he sat about um, a foot in front of me, and so he made comments to us the whole night. Uh, he was very funny. Like, I, I got to give it up to him. Uh, he is taken to heart that the they're supposed to treat it like a shoot. So every two count, he had the bell out with the the wrench, and he would hold it out ready to hit the bell for the three count. And then the ref would say two. So, you know, uh, Drake Younger, Drake uh, Whites or whatever his name is, would yeah. say two. Then he'd look back at him and say two. And the ref would say two. And then he'd say, okay. He'd put it down. He did it on every call. And I was like, that he's, he's doing a very good job of, like, trying to keep the kayfabe going. And then he would make little comments to us, like, oh, watch, this guy's really good or mm. whatnot. So that was really fun. I I, I really enjoyed that. Um, so then the next match was uh, uh, Jerk Jackson himself, Mr. Bobby Fish. Yeah. I remember that name. Old, old school name. Guy yeah. I met probably 15 years ago, maybe. was yeah. uh yeah, About 12 years ago. He was yeah. probably on that card with us that both of us were at in 2005. Yeah, or he was on one NWA Upstate card that I was also on. And uh, I talked to him. And then later he did his like debut in Noah, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And since I was friends with um, Ditch, I was like, hey, Ditch, can you help me get some footage of, of his time in Noah? Uh, because this is kind of pre YouTube or around the era of YouTube. So I was like, he, he really wants to see his debut match and he can't get the footage of it. Can oh. you help us get the match uploaded? So wow. I helped him oh, get wow. some, some footage. I have, I doubt he ever remembers that, but, um, you know, I, it's better than, better than being a school teacher, I'm sure, uh, wrestling for NXT. So we had a, a fun match against a guy named, um, Humberto Carrillo, who, uh, some people say is, is Hector Garza's nephew. So, uh, Mexican wrestler. Um, I, I gotta say he, the, it's been said before, he's getting over at every city. He does all the high flying stuff. He, he's pretty good. Um, and then by the end of the match, he does the slow get up from the mat mm. and the crowd starts chanting his name. Has so for a guy who came in with zero knowledge, like nobody knew who he was in the crowd at all. He hasn't appeared um, on NXT TV yet then. I don't know if he has or hasn't. Yeah. I'm not sure. But for a guy that literally, you know, like there was no pop at all for him yeah. compared to someone from from, you know, Undisputed Era, mm-hmm. um, him getting up and then, you know, the crowd was really, really hot for him. So I, I thought he did a good job, but Bobby Fish won that one. But uh, they did a lot of good uh, flying. It was fun. They they worked. The next one was uh, uh, Dominic Dijak or Dijakovic, I think is his, his new name versus Kona Reeves. Um, and then Kona Reeves had a guy on the outside who was Dan Matha. Uh, at the time, for some reason, I thought he was Fabian Eichner, Eichner. Eichner which was You're funny welcome. because everyone kept referring to him as uh, dollar store Frankie Kazarian because he was wearing this like crazy shirt and he's a bald guy on the outside just yelling things about how this is the worst. Not he didn't literally say this is the worst town I've ever been in, but uh, you could hear the crowd kind of yelling that back at him. Mm. Um, so Dijak is very tall. Mm-hmm. Um, Dijak is, is very, um, athletic. He's very, very, uh, good at flying. I, I wouldn't say he, he still needs something. I, I don't know whether it's the, the outfit or whatnot. It's, it was one of those where he, he just kind of came across a little blander than he needed. And Kona Reeves, I don't know if he's going to graduate. I, uh, I, I don't know if he's ever going to get out of NXT. He's not that big of a guy. He's got, I mean, he's working on a gimmick about being the finest and he, he cuts the promo and he does it all. Um, and they did some, they did one of my favorite things, which is, um, uh, apron related work where you pull the guy off the apron, but you get him stuck between the apron and the banner so that you have him trapped in the middle there so you can beat mm-hmm. up the guy. So there's some malarkey there. 
Um, but in the end, uh, I think, uh, they, they tried to use a chair and the chair got stopped and Dijak has a, a crazy finisher where he like brings the guy up for a choke slam, but then he turns it almost into a, like a blue thunder bomb. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's pretty impressive. So that was fun. Um, and then, uh, after that we had Johnny Gargano versus Aleister Black and they had a long singles match and, uh, the crowd was very into that. Uh, so that was really, really good. Um, I actually didn't take a lot of photos of, of that matches because it was really fun to watch. So is, is your, is your uh, Twitter feed just loaded with comments and, and photos of, of this show? Uh, more or less. A lot yeah. of my feed is. Um, but it was very like, um, Gorgano's playing his very conflicted heel, which was very funny. Mm-hmm. So like he, he would just like, he would go up for nine punches, but then he would say he wouldn't do the 10. He'd be like, cause you guys didn't support me. I'm not doing 10. And, uh, but then like anybody who was wearing a Johnny wrestling shirt, he would come and hug them ringside, which was funny. Um, and Alistair Black is very over. Um, Black is very good. Black is very main event ready. He's got an incredible look and he's one of those guys that I saw people buying posters of left and right. Like he is, he's getting hot. Any, uh, very anything interesting at the merch stand that you noticed? You can buy a $350 NXT belt. <laughs> Yep. You know, they were selling programs um, that were already pre-signed and stuff like that for like 50 bucks. Wow. And I would see people doing it. Um, the kid next to me uh, had a, a, a silver. Sh- I was sitting next to like a seven year old and his dad. And the kid next to me had like a silver Sharpie. And he was able to get Matt Riddle to sign right after his match, like ringside, sign it. And then like with his bro. And I was like, wow, Matt Riddle's got it down in terms of like how to do it. How to get over it, it was very it felt so reminiscent of like a house show from the like late 80s in some ways because it was like you know guys signing autographs ringside and, and booing the heels and it was fun it was definitely really fun uh we had a six-man tag undisputed air versus heavy machinery and ricochet heavy machinery um uh involves uh tucker knight and otis what is it dovovic or something is his name but uh he's got a uh, a minnesota connection yeah. uh and so he was the, over uh, Oh my God, was he over? Uh, first of all, Otis do, uh, yeah, if you, if you just Pronounce look this. up a picture of Otis uh, Dozovic, uh, born 91 in Duluth. So he's, he's a very Minnesotan guy and he, he's like Mr. No Neck. He is just a tank of a guy and he gets in the ring and he just jiggles. And when I say jiggles, like he just sits, he just stands there and kind of dances and starts jiggling. And he is, he's a piece of work. His neck he's, is wider than his head. Oh yeah. He's, he's an amazing guy. And he was so over and the crowd, I, I think there was friends and family from him mm-hmm. there, but he just was so over and he's such a big guy to, for people. He can just, people just bounce off him. And so he can do like when you're doing a six man tag, you can have all three guys attack him and go. And it, it was great. And so he, um, and he wrestled at Augsburg, which is a local college too. So do you think uh, before the show, he was handed a stack of tickets to say, Hey, sell these. <laughs> but I will say, I think before the show, they said, Hey, it's your hometown. We're going to give you a really good shine because mm-hmm. they, 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 they featured him enormously. And even as over as undisputed era was to end it with, and he, he calls Ricochet Ricky the whole time, which is just also hilarious because it's very reminiscent of, of, uh, you know, just screaming Ricky. Ricky, get up! Uh, it's, it's just so reminiscent of, um, who am I thinking of? Uh, 
Ricky and uh, Ricky Gibson and Robert Gibson and uh, Robert Ricky Morton, Morton. the Rock yes, and Roll Express. Exactly. Thank you. It's too early in the morning here. <laughs> so it's very Rock and Roll Express reminiscent just with the beatdown and all that. But that was really, really fun match. And after the match, Otis went in the crowd and grabbed a child and brought him over with him. I, he was handed a child, basically. Uh, so I, I'm guessing it's his son or nephew oh, or something. Okay. But it was that was fantastic. And then like Tucker Knight just ran in behind him and like did a crazy pose. So it was very amusing because it looked like they took as their prize a child from the audience. <laughs> uh, Carrie Sane came out. Uh, she is super duper over. Uh, they had uh, Shayna Baszler uh, wrestle for the title. And um, uh, it was the, the one thing I'll say is, you know how like every match goes or every every wrestling show has the move. And everybody uses the move. And then by the end of the mat, the show, you're like, oh, the, the it's we're all about schoolboys right now. We're all about rocker droppers. We're all about super kicks. Right now, we're all about hard kicks to the chest or hard kicks to the back, especially to the back. Mm-hmm. So there was like four different matches where the theme was throw the guy in the ropes. And then when he bounces off, give him a hard kick to the back. Um, and so in this case, it was working Carrie's arm. Uh, the whole time. So it was a lot of like, get the arm trap behind and then give the hard kick to the back and, and whatnot. And uh, some really good spots uh, for that. And then the main event was uh, the Velveteen Dream versus Ciampa uh, for a very good singles match. And of course, Velveteen Dream is doing like a half Prince gimmick. So you have in Minnesota, an extra connection of level going on there. Did you do like the Prince, where then... Prince attire or something? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. It was very, he even did a promo beforehand talking about Paisley Park and stuff like that. Oh, wow. And, um, and yeah, he, he stole the belt at one point and kissed it and did all sorts of things with it, which was pretty funny. And just his mannerisms, he's very, very good. And even after the show, Ciampa basically put him over as he's like, this kid's 23, give it up for him. What a great wrestler. And I beat him every single time. <laughs> so they, they did a different match than their takeover match. Uh, did you see their takeover match? I'm not sure. Sh- I, I haven't actually watched their whole takeover oh, match oh, yet, okay. so I can't I can't judge. But it was very they, very competitive, real good back and forth. Uh, uh, Champa winning with like kind of the super DDT off the ropes, mm. um, but it was really really enjoyable thing. I, I mean, a little bit of uh, Velveteen, a little bit it has the has the element of kind of the Cena element almost, where he's got an incredible amount of charisma. His execution is kind of there. It's not always a hundred percent there. But his charisma is, is really, really pulling him through. And his, and, his offense and is pretty spectacular. Some of it is. I, I don't know if he was kicking all of the spectacular stuff out this time. Yeah. Well, I mean, at, at the highest level, when he does those takeover matches, he does stuff that... And there's, like, no knock on Cena, but, like, Cena doesn't necessarily oh, do no, stuff that's, 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 like, amazing. Uh, Cena was probably a bad example. Oh, okay. Um, but I, I was... But anyways, as you can imagine, that was a very good show. Like, it was all, with the exception of one or two matches, it, it was almost all top-level talent wrestling, doing fun stuff, and, you know, using the the homegrown talent in the right way uh, with, with Ricochet teaming with the heavy machinery. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I, unlike you, took pictures, took notes, paid attention to my NXT house show. Well, I had town. everybody talking to me every every second when I went, when I went to NXT a few months ago. That was what was nice is I went by myself. So mm-hmm. I was able to just concentrate on it, listen to what the crowd was saying about people. Uh, tons of being the elite shirts. Yeah. You know, I would see like a, a middle-aged woman just walking around with super elite cart racers. 
Really? And I would just be like, wow, this is like someone, it looks like someone's mom. Like it was one of those weird ones where you're just like, why are you wearing that shirt? Like, and then of course, lots of bullet club shirts, lots of being the elite shirts, some golden lover shirts, a couple of WrestleMania shirts, a couple mm-hmm. people with ugly, uh, stone Austin, stone cold Steve Austin, 316 light up sweaters. Light that up was sweaters. pretty entertaining. Like Christmas sweaters. Christmas sweaters. The guy sitting next to me was wearing a bootleg shirt. Um, that I mentioned on Twitter and then people immediately were like, Oh, it's this one. And it's, it's a variation of the, the Austin blood from a stone shirt, but it's Becky Lynch. And so it says like Becky 316. Oh, wow. And then on the back, it's a picture of her bleeding and it says like blood from a bar, uh, blood from a Blarney stone or something like that. So like instead of the WrestleMania 13 sharpshooter, Steve Austin. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. It's, it was very cool. And then someone, if you check my Twitter, somebody immediately like, and that's a bootleg. Like, oh, that's it's not, this shirt. Of course, that's it's a bootleg. A bootleg cause, yeah. cause W's not going to glorify the blood anymore. Yeah. No, no, no. And so I watched, I looked and, and I'll get to tell you that guy sitting next to me was like, you're, you know, he, he, he was just that quintessential fan. Cause he's got that Becky Lynch bootleg. And then he liked two wrestlers a lot. Number mm-hmm. one, right. Alistair Black. He was going nuts for. Mm-hmm. And number two, Kari Sane. That was the two that he just marked out for the hardcore the whole time. And that was like a middle-aged guy my age. Or maybe about your age. Um, Not that old, but yeah. Yeah, not that old. Not that old. So, But it was just very funny. Um, But yeah, they did a great job. Um, And like I said, the the show, uh, probably 1,500 tickets sold, maybe 1,200 there. So um, well done. Well done stuff for sure. Cool. So yeah. Well, we... And we're back. Um, while we took a break there to get some coffee and tea, uh, I went to go investigate the chomping noises I heard. Chomping noises? The other rooms. And yes, my dog had found a Christmas ornament and was, was chewing on it. And then when I took the ornament away from her, I discovered she had somehow got a piece of garland wrapped around her back leg. So as she walked away from me, she had this like little green garland stuck around her back leg. So. She is festooned as well. She was festooned, exactly. <laughs> you stole my line. Oh, did I? Okay. It's all right. Okay, fine. I'm, I'm glad to see you using it in the right context. Yes. Um, anyhow, so you can the see this, this week, You can see this buffalo, you know, before we get into real stuff, you can see this buffalo thing behind me? I sure can. It's on such a small screen to me, I guess. Do you know what this is? I might uh, edit It looks like a sunset of some sort. No one knows what we're, what we're talking about here, so I might edit this out, but this is the pale blue dot. That is Earth from space? That is Earth from space, yes. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, okay. Anyway. This week was a WrestleMomics week uh, in the sense that we we both had uh, some stock action. We had some board of directors action with WWE. We had a talk from George, uh, including, as usual, George dropping some knowledge bombs about uh, uh, what, what his family life. Dropping the mic. More. Yeah. We're, we, I, I feel like I know so much about George just from little tidbits he's given us about his wife and his kids and his all these things in his life. Yes, um, we we are we're then, always implored to like imagine imagine his his mansion home, his giant living rooms and his giant dining rooms, and him like talking about social media followers with his daughters, and then like comparing it. We'll get into it and then dropping the mic. Yeah, um, and then uh, I did some trademark work, and we got some other stuff we can talk about today. Uh, including some more scholarly articles. I, I have my top five picks mm. for uh, new articles for people to read. But um, yeah, let's start it off with um, some new knowledge. Uh, WWE is adding two board of directors members. Uh, this story broke on the 3rd, which was uh, Monday. 
And so there's two people, Mr. Manjit Singh mm-hmm. and Mr. Alan Wexler. And they're both joining uh, WWE's board of directors. Um, as far as I can tell, they are not replacing anyone. They're mm-hmm. probably going to be supplemental new members. And one of the reasons I, uh, I think that's going to happen is that when I looked at some of the old comments from the guidelines for WWE on their board, they mentioned the board consists currently of 11 members. We will consider our current board size to be functioning well. While we consider our current size to be functioning well, the company is considering adding one or two independent directors. And that's exactly what they do. An independent director just means someone who is not, in fact, an employee of WWE. So, you know, Vince and Steph and and people like that are not considered independent directors. Whereas someone like Mr. Uh, Manjit Singh and Mr. Alan Wexler are being added. And uh, they even give us more reasons about why they decided to add these two, didn't they? Uh, so Mr. Manjit Singh is a... He he worked for Sony recently, right? And he it sounds like he knows a lot about the India market. And uh, what does it say here? Mr. Singh's experience as a seasoned professional in media, and in specific, his depth of knowledge about in the India subcontinent, an important geographical area in the company's business strategy, were key factors in the decision to elect him to the company's board. So he's going to help him get in, get into India, which is the future. And, hey, I'm I. What I always say, and I've I've said this a lot when I've looked at the board of directors, is that they should be focusing more on bringing on leadership that has experience in the areas that they are most um, underrepresented in. Mm-hmm. And so when it came to being a technology company, I think they needed to have people that had experience in OTT platforms. And when it came to things like global expansion, I thought they really need to have someone who's an expert in China or someone who's an expert in India. And so I, I highly applaud a decision like this. Now, I can't say whether this is the right guy or not, but I think the 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 premise behind it is the right premise for sure. And then Mr. Wexler um, was elected. He He's expertise in digital technology, direct to consumer communications, and his very extensive understanding of the advertising industry, prime factor in the decision to elect him to the board. And when they say direct to consumer communications and advertising, it makes me think that they really mean a lot about um, kind of consumer marketing efforts around, you know, direct email and trying to find ways to kind of target people. Um, to get them to click on ads, possibly ad- online advertising. So, which, uh, which again, is a reward, as George Barrios pointed out this week. We'll get into what's that. What's that? Which is a big well, reward. Yes. We'll get into that. Yes. yes. So, uh, WWE board probably adding these two directors and keeping the directors they already have, which, um, if you're not familiar with all the people on the board, I'll just remind you it's Vincent K. McMahon, Mr. Frank Riddick, who is an outside person, Mr. Jeff Speed, who used to be with uh, Six Flags. Uh, Patricia Grossman, um, uh, Robert Peterson, who's from Mashable, uh, Stuart Go- Goldfarb, Lauren Ong, who was a uh, travel channel. And then you have the WWE people, Paul Levesque, Stephanie McMahon, George Berrios, Michelle Wilson. Mm-hmm. So um, hopefully this will give a little bit more, um, you know, independent voice to what's happening with the board and make sure that they're balancing it there. Of course, Vince McMahon having, you know, the super shares, uh, he's always going to be able to control, control who's on the board. Because he gets 10x voting power. Uh, someone asked me, how much do board people make? Well, they make probably between 50 and $90,000 a year on straight compensation. But on top of that, you get stock awards. And those stock awards, especially with the way the stock is now, that can be worth um, a whole lot more. Uh, and so we, we've seen even some people begin to acquire stock um, at some pretty favorable 
rates. And then when you're selling it at $75 or $90 a share, uh, you know, your stock award that was maybe worth $50,000 could be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars a, a couple of years later. Yeah, we see Form uh, 4s come out every quarter where every member of the board of directors is given a certain amount of stock. Yes, it, and depending on how they perform as a company, I think, is, is it's somewhat dependent on as well. Mm. And then um, there is no term limits. So uh, there's a specific line in the, the, the charter that basically says, we've determined as a board not to establish term limits in, in regards to service on the board. So they want a more seasoned approach to the company's governance. So there's not some kind of belief that you have to be kicking people out after a certain period of time, um, which... Again, uh, people that study governance and, and whatnot, they might say that that's not always the best practice is, is having boards that are continually the same people. I, like I said, I just finished reading that book about bad blood, the Theranos, uh, debacle and, uh, definitely, uh, the lack of oversight by the board and the inexperience of the board in the field that it was supposed to be regulating. Cause when you add someone, you're supposed to basically say, why are they appropriate to be on your board of directors? Why, why do they have expertise in the field that they're in? Um, and so you, you can see that a lot with, with, um, other companies have struggled with that. So not always the best practice, but by no means an unusual practice. So, uh, that was just my thoughts there. And then lastly, Vince McMahon, he, uh, did another little mini sell-offs. And again, it didn't have as much of a negative effect on the stock as I thought it might've, but, uh, he basically took 306,000 shares of, of class B, turned them into class A shares and then sold them for between 74 and $75 on, um, last Friday. He made somewhere between 22 and $23 million. I, I was on my phone when I tried to calculate it. So I, I've seen some people say 22, some people say 23. I think I got $22.8 um, million. So there you go. That, that was probably the right number, but it does mention he still has 31.9 million shares of WWE, mm-hmm. which at a 70 plus dollar share rate value means that that's worth almost two and a half billion dollars. Well, north of 2 billion, maybe 2.4 at, uh, the old prices. So. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a billionaire just on his WWE share holdings, which again is, uh, always going to be dependent on the value of the company, but hopefully he has other holdings and things that also kind of cement up his worth. I think when someone asked me what his actual worth is right now, um, let's see here. Uh, Lavi asked me what his worth was total. And I made the point that when Forbes, uh, put him on, they said he was worth 3.3 billion. Um, that was a little bit because they took his value as of September 7th, 2018, which is very close to the, the peak for WWE stock when it was in the plus $90 range. So it could just be because of the stock, but, uh, just, uh, another, a data point on Vince. Uh, and in theory, Trump was estimated at something like 3.1. So right now Vince is, Vince is the, uh, the one who can, uh, uh, laugh at him and, uh, he can pay the tip this year. So Vince still has something like 80% of controlling interest in the company, even though he's got, he's got what, 31 million shares now left? What does this form say that I've got? 31. 31.8, maybe 31.9 million shares left, which is like only about a third of the outstanding shares according to the trading schedules. The trading schedules are showing 90.8 million uh, diluted shares. So that's, that's about a, he's got about a third of the shares, but because his shares, our B stock family stock. He's got 10 X voting power on each one of his shares. So he's still got a vast majority of the control. The only other person I believe who's now holding B shares is Stephanie. And she has, and according to the proxy, we, 
Hmm? Didn't we say Linda had like a hundred shares or something? We argue about this every time. She does not. Uh, wait, she does have B shares. She does have B shares. Okay. According to the proxy. Yeah. She has about a half a million B shares and Stephanie has uh, almost 2 million B shares. No, no, no. So here's it. Um, uh, Linda has 100 class A shares and 566,670 yeah. class B shares. Yep. That's, that's what I'm looking at too. Yeah. And that they mentioned that in Vince's filing. Ah. So she, she still has a little over half a million shares. Okay. So I'm the one who gets confused. Linda does have B shares. Okay. Yes. She only has a hundred A shares. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was just kind of interesting that, uh, you know, what's Vince doing with another $23 million, same week he announced the XFL teams. So presumably I would think it's related to either financing in the year end here where you're just kind of, um, you know, getting your tax accounting set or it's related to more investment in XFL costs. Or someone suggested me on, on Twitter, Christmas shopping. Yep. Well, he's going to buy the elite. He's going to buy Kenny Omega. He's going to buy new Japan. He's going to buy impact. Remember impact was there visiting with him. He's going to buy ring of honor. He's going to buy the Madison square garden facility. Yeah. He's going to buy Fox sports. Uh, he's going to buy the UFC. Uh, maybe he'll buy the pride library. Well, he can't, he can't afford UFC, but why not just buy all those other things? He can, he mm-hmm. has almost enough. Man, he has a lot of money. He does have a lot of money. So why not just buy ring of honor? And, and if you leverage with debt, you can buy whatever you want. That's why they bought the UFC. Nobody paid $4 billion for that. Everybody just said, I'll, I'll owe you. We'll get back to you. Mm-hmm. So George did a talk at uh, UBS. He did. Uh, we thought it, I talk. thought we talked about it this last week in anticipation. We did our, our, our preview, our, our, our hype, our build of this. And, uh, I listened to part of our show back the other day and we talked about it happening on Tuesday. We did. Turns out it happened on Monday. So yeah. we both forgot that it were, you know, didn't know that it was happening on Monday. And, uh, I, I went to, to work on Tuesday. I was like, all right, I'm going to listen to this burials talk. Oh, wait, it already happened. Yeah. Which maybe it's better that we, we were able to just wait till it was over and then kind of consume it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when you're trying to consume it in real time, you feel, you know, it, it puts pressure on you. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to kind of hear the talk, if you want to see our notes on the talk, we have a transcript of the entire talk. If you go to reddit.com slash r slash Russell Momics, uh, you'll see that I posted the George talk there and I posted a link to the transcript. So you can see it all there. Um, and uh, it's it's pretty good. It's about a 22 page transcript, 24 page transcript. Uh, but that's because YouTube kind of puts it in a funny order with a very narrow margin. So it's not quite that short, but what happened is Brandon went through it and he highlighted what he thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. When I went through it, I, um, I data pointed the points that I, I thought were intriguing. There's probably 20 of them. I'm not going to go through all 20 of these things. Um, but it, it is kind of worth other people kind of checking it out and seeing what, what's in here. Um, for sure, because he always drops nuggets, little bits of information that we never knew or that we hadn't heard or that confirms something that they're concerned with or just strange, um, bariosisms about how he sees the wrestling world. Um, and so maybe one of the, uh, first bariosisms is, uh, WWE versus Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift, uh, from about the five minute mark. It's my daughters i have two 14 year olds i have a 19 year old and two 14 year olds 19 year olds off at college he can't torment me anymore only from far away but the two 14 year olds will torment me and they were telling me how justin bieber and taylor swift are killing us on youtube and so i go on i say well 
from what I see here is Justin Bieber's got 31 million followers. Taylor Swift has 32. And the last time I checked, WWE had 37 million. Drop the mic. I could finish dinner. So 950 million followers. If you look at video views, YouTube measures uploaded content. So not UGC content, but uploaded content. Um, Lifetime were the largest sports property in the history of YouTube with over. Okay. So uh, we learn a little bit more about, about uh, the endless battles between the women in the Barrios household and George. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's always talking about what, what do they enjoy watching? You know, we, they like watching the women's matches and uh, how they don't understand football. That comes up uh, a little bit later here. Um, and and the, here's another element where we learn a little bit more about uh, uh, the Barrios uh, household at, at the seven and a half minute mark. It's called Cricket is Weird. It's one of the simplest sports to understand because when people see a ring, you know, whether it's boxing, MMA or wrestling, but when people see a ring, they know what's going to happen. You know, as, as passionate a, a football fan I, as I am, I know, again, my daughters will watch and go, well, what, well, now that one of them's dating a football player, they now have learned to appreciate football, haven't up until now, but it took them a while to really understand it. Same thing, you know, I, I go to India regularly for the reason I mentioned before, and as much as I watch cricket, it's difficult for me to understand. That doesn't happen with a ring. So it's why India is our number one market. It's why Southeast Asia in general is such a huge market for us in terms of digital consumption. Same thing as the Middle East. So it's a story that everyone understands. In the sporting context, it's one of the simplest to understand. Yeah. So, uh, again, we learn a little bit more about the Barrios household. One of his daughters is apparently dating a football player. And uh, uh, we get back to the cricket is weird. And uh, I got to agree with that. Cricket is weird. Um but uh, it's it's an interesting argument that they keep making that, yes, wrestling is very easy to translate, uh, which is funny since you'd think then that would imply that then things like international wrestling would have no problem conquering the U.S. market, right? Because if wrestling such an international story, why why not just put Japanese wrestling on U.S. television? Yes, but WWE is the biggest and the best uh, form of, uh, of wrestling. I, I thought it was interesting, and this is why I highlighted it throughout. He uses the word wrestling a lot in here. And I think it's more than I've ever noticed him use it before. He did not use the WWE language sports entertainment as much as I think he's used it in the past. Like, he uses wrestling. I don't know. We could probably do a control F here for wrestling. And how many times was the word wrestling uttered by George Barrios here? 11 times. I thought that was... I don't you're, know. you're very right in, in the fact that he doesn't normally say that. Uh, for instance, um, I once did a, a find on the words professional wrestling across all of the transcripts I'd collected on the conference calls for something like eight years. Mm-hmm. And I only found one instance where this phrase like professional wrestling had been used and it was used by George, not by Vince. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those where I could almost see like Vince saying, we're not in the professional wrestling business, George. Like, like sometimes we- I think he lets it slip in, in the context of in ring content when they're talking about how, you know, how the network, Oh, we found out that people wanted actually to watch wrestling content on the network and not just whatever non wrestling shows. Um, yeah, that's a good example. Or, or just the fact that if he calls it sports entertainment, MMA, et cetera, uh-huh. then he's kind of bridging that gap where he's kind of saying, well, no, we are like more like a fighting sport or we are more like a football. And you can sense sometimes he, he wants to play that. No, we're a episodic television show, maybe. Cause of course the, the question about competition comes up later and we'll get to that of, of any, it's just the, the general answer. I'm in competition for time. 
Right. But, and, um, and, and even in, in this instance that we're talking about right now, where we haven't played this clip yet, right? But this, this part where he talks about wrestling being a hundred years old, he uses professional general wrestling as a genre. Like he, he used professional wrestling, which I think is a, we're kind of hyper analyzing something here, but I think it's, uh, he used to say wrestling is, is one thing, but I think to say professional wrestling is, is another thing within this weird linguistic WWE world that exists. Like, they are, they are usually so opposed to using professional wrestling. And Stephanie McMahon kind of talked about it a little bit in the Business Partner Summit about how, you know, once they redefined themselves as, as being sports entertainment instead of professional wrestling, we were a bit better able to sell our TV show and sell ourselves to advertisers and things like that. I just, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm always, you know, I'm the one who did the W, the language of W article. Like, I'm always fascinated with how they use language and how they're so careful about using certain words and not using other words that, I don't know, I, th- I found this remarkable. Hey, WrestleNomics Radio listeners, let me tell you a little bit about my newest time-saving trick. I just got my contact lens prescription renewed while sitting on my chaise lounge yesterday. Less than five minutes, I used an awesome new app. It's called Simple Contacts. Anyone who wears contact lenses needs to know about it. It's getting to the end of the year. You've got your FSA, you've got your HSA, you got to spend that vision money. Well, let me tell you, one of the best things you can do right now is use Simple Contacts. You can renew your prescription. You can reorder your brand of lenses from anywhere in minutes through an online vision test. It's designed by doctors, and every test is even reviewed by a doctor. So they're literally bringing the doctor's office to your home. I know, Brandon, you tried this out. You used it. What did you think of the experience? I used it. I, you can do it right on your smartphone. You just walk like 10 feet away from your smartphone. You do the eye test just right there. And it's perfect because this is not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. But what's great about it is it lets you test your current prescription. Make sure you can still see 2020 using that. And we renew that prescription. And uh, this means that you can get a $20 offer. In fact, right now is what we're offering. So try it yourself. Save $20 on your contact lenses by simply going to simplecontacts slash WE or enter the code WE at checkout. I want to mention this is not a replacement for your periodic health eye exam, but you still need those occasionally. It is still the most convenient way to renew your prescription and reorder your contacts if your vision hasn't changed. Don't just take it from me. They've been rated five stars over 5,000 times on the App Store. That's pretty impressive. So, again, $20. Go to simplecontacts.com slash WE. Remember, that's the WrestleNomics Enterprise. WE. Enter WE at checkout. Save time. Save money. Save yourself a headache with Simple Contacts. Get that vision. Let's listen to this wrestling is 100 years old statement from uh, George about at 8.15 in the uh, you. Part of the value that we've been able to create is predicated by time. You know, people forget whether it's the NBA or baseball here in the U.S., uh, certainly football, these are 100-year properties. Well, we're now, in WWE as its uh, uh, incarnation under Vince, when he founded it, 30 years. But if you look at professional gener- uh, wrestling as a genre, it's about 100 years old now. So time, and we've been able to create stars generation after generation after generation, whether it's Bruno San Martino, Andre the Giant, Stone Cold, the Rock, or today Charlotte Flair, and it gives me great joy to have a woman on that page, it shows our ability to reflect the times and influence the times. We create stars generation after generation after generation. So wow. George Barris has been studying his Gotch Hackenschmidt history, 100 years old, the wrestling yeah. business is. Yeah. 
I, I would hate to, to uh, you know, someday discover the Jim Londo searches that he's been doing on his computer there. Uh, and yeah, it's interesting to to hear how he, he thinks about this as 100 years old. Same thing with football, like the idea that, that the 100-year-old football, when you could really say, no, the, the changes in, in making football a very popular sport in America is a very recent development, actually, um, g- coinciding a lot with television. And what's funny is that you can find some articles, as I've been going through professional wrestling here, I found articles from like the 70s and the 80s basically talking about how they try to make football more friendly for a television audience by kind of changing around some of the rules mm-hmm. um, around where, you know, where you'd kick and where you'd, you'd the ball would be placed and do different things to try to make it more exciting. Um, it's, it's interesting to call it a hundred year uh, generation thing. It's funny. I was um, someone brought up a, a Russian uh, political science thing they were reading. And in the middle of it, they referred to something known as the Hamburg test from the twenties. And, uh, and it, it basically explains that the Hamburg test was the fact that when um, wrestlers would meet each other, oftentimes it would seem like the competition was not so authentic. But every now and then, the Hamburg wrestlers were known to perhaps try to test one another out in a way that was uh, a little bit more serious and uh, kind of seemed a little bit more like a real thing. And so that was known as kind of the Hamburg test. And so I just thought it was funny that even when you go back to like the twenties, People are talking about, well, this pro wrestling doesn't always seem to be on the the uh, the up and up. But yet there are times when guys seem like they might be shooting on each other. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I just the idea that wrestling is only 100 years old is is kind of laughable because even 100 years ago, we talk about, you know, it being a work sport. The turn of the century, you see it being talked about being a work sport uh, and the fact that it's far more than 100 years old. And, of course, the idea that Vince is founding the WWE 30 years ago, and somehow that wasn't just the natural evolution from the WWF at the time. Yeah, well, I, I think it's... I think of Gotch Hackenschmidt, which was, what, 1908, right? I think that's, um, as far as professional wrestling as a big spectator sport, that's the beginning. That's a big landmark, anyway. Depending on which country you're looking at. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, uh, let's, let's listen to some Vince advice. Uh, mm-hmm. It's always fun when we get to hear, we, we, we learn more about Vince through the, the words of his uh, underlings than we ever do from Vince himself yes. because they, they all repeat these stories and we can't tell if this is the marketing message that they all decided each year. This is the, the things they are going to re- repeat or whether these are all real stories. I have to believe most of them are somewhat real stories just because we hear them so often from so many different people. But once again, we're going to hear, what was Vince's advice to George? Second, talk about the transformation. You know, we, we like to say internally that we're all about reimagining. You know, Vince has a, a, when I first joined the company, I remember Vince saying, he goes, George, the one thing I ask of you, well, two things. Number one, help us put smiles on people's faces because that's the business. Uh, and number two, come in every day like it's your first day on the job. Right. Never take anything for granted. Don't be complacent. And, and especially don't take pride of ownership in what you've created in the past. Be willing to break it and start again. And so we talk a lot about reimagining the company and reimagining the business, every part of the business. And we've done it multiple times. Yeah. So I think that says a lot about these. If I was doing the, the psychology of Vince McMahon, I think that line there about don't take pride in ownership in what you've created in the past. Um, I feel like that's a very Vince line because mm-hmm. Vince is very obsessed with the idea of like, you can't sit on your laurels and 
just because it was successful before, that means you're a success today. Now, that's not to say that Vince is constantly challenging himself to do something better. But I do get that feeling like sometimes people will be like, well, how could you fire this guy who's been with the company for 30 years? And I just feel like with Vince, it's all transactional. Yeah, we've like heard from, he's, from he's, we've heard from Stephanie recently. Her tell the story about how he says, um, you know, come to work every day like it's your first day on the job. Yeah, that's that's their big talking point for sure. It is kind of funny to me that that Vince would put his job title as put smiles on people's faces. I, I would love to do the the search to figure out what year did that become the mission of WWE? Because uh, we've heard it now for three or four years, but. I don't remember that 10 years ago. So I'd be curious when that transition happened. I was going to say, you should, you should do a search through the uh, conference call transcripts and f- see where the first time that phrase appears. Yeah. I'd be really curious about that. So um always love listening to some, you know, Vince, Vince stories here. Um, we get the story about how does, how do you tear the content? Um, we don't need to listen to that. Uh, then we talk about, you know, the HBO piece that they did with the documentaries and how great that was. Um, George remembers Andre. Yes, uh, we, we, we hear here, quote, quote, obviously, given my age, Andre was someone I followed. George is a big Andre, fa- Andre fan. He, he likes to put over that HBO series. I mean, obviously, or documentary. It's obviously something that WWE contributed to, and there's lots of WWE footage in it. And, you know, well, and, and they took ownership of the direction of where it went, where it was, I think, a real big turning point for them to kind of say, we're going to give you the ability to tell the story you want to tell, but we're also going to cooperate in a way to make it successful so that we can push our narrative as well. Yeah. Cause there's talking heads in there that W would never hire. There's, you know, Meltzer's in there and Patrice LaProd. Maybe he would be in there, but certainly Meltzer would never appear in a, in a WWE produced documentary. At the uh, 13 minute mark, we have the, the impromptu staff meeting in Vince's office and they talk about, um, what they have to do. Let's listen to this. Cause I think this is again, one of these interesting uh, cases of how is WWE management expected to work? Hey, uh, impromptu staff meeting in Vince's office. And he told everyone in that room uh, that we needed to own these platforms. Uh, unsaid, but understood at least by me is if we didn't succeed, it wasn't going to be good for anybody in that room. So we needed to own those platforms. And in fact, for about a year afterwards, every week, uh, each of his direct staff had to write a one pager of what we did that week to drive those, the results on, on, on these platforms. And it's stuff that anybody who manages does that, you know, day to day. So if something's important, keep an eye on it, get a feedback loop, measure it. It's amazing how few people yeah. do it. Um, so. We just hear that, you know, not only did they get kind of obsessed with social media, literally management every week had to write memos about what are you doing to push us on social media. Mm-hmm. I thought that was intriguing. Um, there, uh, the, the next section kind of goes into, uh, the growth drivers around the world. And he basically talks about, you know, what does he think is going to make, make it uh, grow. And I don't want to listen to all of this right now. So I'll just kind of give you the the top level. Number one is about the live value of viewership is increasing. So essentially TV rights are worth more. Uh, Number two, people are getting more comfortable with direct to consumer model, which I think is his way of saying that, you know, they're more used to using OTT services and other ways to kind of order product and get product directly. Number three is viewership is fragmenting across the screens. And so you have to be able to 
um, deal with all the different places that people can try to consume content. And then with that, it talks about, you know, broadband penetration, broadband speeds, and how there's been just such an enormous disruption in India in the last couple of years here as some players have come in and basically said, we're going to do really cheap, very accessible broadband across the whole country. And it's just blown up the whole structure. Well, this, and it was not something they expected. The, these three things that he points out here, and there's a fourth even too, isn't there? Yeah, right? Yeah, the emerging middle, the emerging class. middle class. Okay, uh, well, we can't. But, the but, what, growth what, in the middle class. What, what I want to get at, though, and that's, that's the fourth one is not as important as what I'm trying to get at here. But like we, we try to do in the lead up to the Q3 report in the month between Q3 ending and the Q3 report coming out. We try to look at all these metrics to see like, well, how, how is W's business doing or how is W popularity doing? And we looked at things like viewership and attendance and Google trends and things like that. And uh, I think we try to look at some social media metrics and YouTube views as well. And uh, so I think that's along the lines of what he's talking about here. Um, he's going to talk about attendance later too, which is interesting. But I mean, what, what's he saying here that viewership is, is important to us still? Uh, how many physical products and digital products we're selling? Is important. Well, but he, he kind of talks a lot about the direct to consumer model. So I do feel like it's, it's more than just selling the products. It's about the, how can I market directly to you without needing a middleman? Mm -hmm. Which, which again, like you point out here, attendance is not listed as one of these big things. Star creation is not listed as one of these big things. Mm -hmm. Basically, they're just, you, you could apply most of what they've said here to almost any business in the world and just say, what if you are in an entertainment business, what is your value? And it would be that TV is still producing lots of money. You can uh, figure out ways to directly sell to people more things. Or you can worry about the fact that you have to worry about social media, YouTube, Facebook, as well as video services and other things to get your content to them. Yeah. And I guess just, just listening to this and thinking about this, if there's a vulnerability, we, we did the W vulnerabilities episode a while back, but like if there's a vulnerability here that stands out, it's just that WWE has a problem creating stars. And if, if, uh, there was ever a way to compete with WWE, it would be to get big distribution and to also be able to create stars, which I think is W's demonstrated for a number of years that they're not so great at doing. They talk about affinity model for wrestling in the next section where they say, oh, almost half our, our fan, uh, half the homes have, you know, a fan and then with some affinity WWE and in our top markets, you know, we have what 311 million broadband homes and it's growing dramatically in India and so forth. You hear these numbers all the time. Again, what an affinity means in this case is, is going to be very loose because it could even be as simple as, do you recognize who the rock is? Okay. You have an affinity for wrestling now. And you'd say, well, I don't know if that's really true. I, I, as much as some other things, I would rather listen to the section at 21 minutes in where it's about the major markets up for renewal. Cause I think here he actually dropped some information that I, as a close observer of WWE information did not know. Um, and so I'd like to, to listen to that. I mentioned the major markets for us, uh, UK, India, the Middle East, China, Latin America. Germany, uh, and a variety of other markets, those being the, uh, the biggest, uh, will be up for renewal here over the next 12 to 18 months. Uh, the expectation has been that we'd uh, announce a distribution deal in the UK towards the end of this year. In India, in the beginning, first half of next year, we always tell people that can happen quicker than people expect. It could also take a little bit longer, but our, our, and a best estimate uh, are these timelines. And as I mentioned, 
Middle East, Latin America, China, and several other markets will announce as well over the next several months. So that's really interesting to me because he's mentioning um, a couple places that I haven't heard were coming up for renewal. I had not heard China's coming up for renewal. That PPTV deal, is that going to change? And that's what he's referring to is PPTV, not some other distributor of Raw and SmackDown. Well, in a different interview, somebody talked about um, in China that the only way to win was basically to go through small regional networks, that there was no really national television you could get, where it was a lot more, if you wanted to kind of get ahead, you would have to go through all each of these kind of regional provincial networks. And so I do wonder if he's trying to talk about kind of a non-OTT solution, because that might not be a viable way of, of really moving forward here, is that you might have to go to, you know, an actual deep distribution platform. So China, I'm very curious what they're going to do there because it's one where they talked about China to death in the lead up to the PPTV deal. And then we've heard almost nothing about it since it's actually gone into place about how many people were they, how much money did they get from it? You know, the fact that they, they've been hiring and firing Chinese stars and that they've had uh, John Cena living over there speaks a little bit to their interest in the marketplace. But at the same time, India, India, India. I mean, they didn't add someone with Chinese expertise to the board. Maybe John Cena will be added to the board soon. <laughs> he would be. That would be fascinating. That would act. You know, if you had added Brian Danielson to the board, if that had been his retirement position instead of coming back to WWE, that would have been very intriguing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the the wrestler representation on the board, someone who says, "Yeah, I honestly that would go a long way uh, beyond having a Triple H type." If you actually had a true wrestler rep on the board who you know would kind of represent the interests of the wrestlers. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, maybe that's what Rhino's off to do. Maybe. Um, but the fact that China's coming up for renewal, Middle East, which, uh, um, again, you know, opportunity here for a little bit more spotlight of WWE in the Middle East, something they love. They love when people make those connections there. So it'll be interesting to see, is it going to still be with um, OSN? What, it's not OSN. OSN. Mm-hmm. Or are they going to move somewhere else uh, in that structure? Are they going to get some different TV deals that are specific to countries, you know, so we're going to see a Saudi Arabian TV deal or something like that. They mentioned Latin America, uh, been so much talk about, you know, a possible expansion of NXT Latin America, a possible, the tryouts that they just did in Chile. Um, they already announced recently the Latin America Fox deal. I thought Fox sports deal. So I didn't think that was up for renewal yet. So they, they must be talking about other marketplaces, um, where they might be getting renewed. Germany is a really interesting one because we hear a lot that Germany is one of the biggest markets for WWE. Mm-hmm. And um, I know they, I think they moved away from ProSieben TV or did they move to, I can't remember which now, but um, I'll be curious to see what's happening with Germany there. And then of course, we've heard a lot of talk about, you know, NXT UK and that includes even people like Walter who were signed. And then the question about NXT Germany was kind of a natural extension of that, of, of the next most logical place for them to in Europe to probably set up something. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really intriguing. Um, the fact that, you know, we haven't heard a lot about China. He does seem to be both confirming and not confirming that they're going to announce the UK deal, which they now have three weeks left. Mm-hmm. Um, what to, if they're late? What if they're late? What if was it was the new year? The ball drops and no UK TV deal yet. This is a stock drop. No, not that bad. This happened when they did the, um, uh, the WWE domestic deal mm-hmm. a couple of years ago is they kept telling everyone we'll have it done by the end of the year and they didn't have it done by the end of the year. So then they told, we'll, we'll try to do it sometime in Q1 mm-hmm. and then get it done in Q1. So they, they've, they've run to this before. So they know that they have to keep it vague. I think it's really clear when you hear George say something like, I don't know if you caught earlier when he says, I've been traveling to India a lot mm-hmm. and you know, they just had Matt Hardy there. 
uh, doing all sorts of appearances. He was and, singing, and I heard. On like Indian, Indian Idol and other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's clear to me that they're doing an all out push for India. Uh, the NXT UK deal is effort, but it doesn't feel to me like they actually have that much confidence in what they're doing on the, the UK television deal on the main roster. You don't seem to hear that they're really pushing it. Push, 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 you know, sending talent there, trying to, to glad hand everyone. And again, I fully expect it to be a sky deal. I don't expect ITV to be swooping in and taking it. Um, but we'll see what happens. That'll be very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially with, you know, kind of the, the excitement that's gone on with someone like a Becky Lynch right now is you can make a strong argument that they really do have, um, possibly on their hands, a, a homegrown to a degree, you know, uh, UK superstar. She's from Ireland. UK Ireland superstar. Ireland is not part of the UK. Only Northern Ireland. Uh, only Northern Ireland. Um, I discovered uh, the other day, uh, so they have 10 million user accounts they mentioned, uh, which assume, assumably that is, is user accounts, people that maybe signed up for either WWE Network or possibly through the uh, WWE shop. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing it's what they mean by a user account there. Yep. I, I doubt that means they've had a million users or signed up for that WWE Network app that they had for a while where you could kind of watch second streaming um, things going on on on, on uh, Raw and SmackDown during the commercial breaks and whatnot. Um, and then we discover that WWE has, in fact, beat Cage Match. They beat Wrestling. They, bought, they beat Pro Fighter DB. They, in fact, have beat everybody. They beat Moonsault.de. They beat them all. Because at 2351, we learn about what? Now, well, wait a minute. Now, if, if, if WWE had purchased the GFW wrestling database, would we hear about this? Would this be reported in the SEC filings? Um, not necessarily. Okay, let's play. Why? Is, is there a rumor about that or something? <laughs> no, I'm, no, let's play the clip. Say what, what we're doing, in essence, is building the most sophisticated wrestling database in the world. So if you are a fan of our content, ideally, we'll really understand how you like to engage with us and then we'll be able to do that better. I mean, that that ultimately is the goal. And we see that today already, right? So we'll leverage our viewership data on the network to make sure you know when we have a new show featuring your favorite superstar. You know, when we started the network, every single subscriber got the same message. Every single one. Today, we have hundreds of personalized messages that go out depending on how you enjoy the content. We'll also okay. see when you go to events, where you like to sit when you go to events. Are you a network subscriber? It allows us to reward in different ways our most valuable fans, our most passionate fans. Similarly, because we know what talent you like, maybe because we saw you searching for them on our own and operate, we saw you watching a particular show, we can make sure you know about when we release a new product that maybe has that talent. Okay. I've been confused by your All stop right, signals here. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that it was not the end of a sentence where I wrote the word right. stop. Um, you know, it just strikes me so much that they've invested all this technology into targeting people. And they have such a sh- cruddy UI for their WWE network. Mm-hmm. Because to me, if you have the most sophisticated wrestling network in the world, 
I should be able to search for a wrestler and then say whether I want to watch them in a tag match or search by year yes. or do all these other things that I would think would be the simplest things. And I can only imagine what weird results you get out of it. Just imagine if you went shopping and the only choices you had were aisles that were preset, but they weren't preset by like names of things that you expect. It was by the date the product was released. And you'd be <laughs> like, okay, what year do I think Tupperware came out? All right. Now it's not going to be near anything else. It's a container. It's just, I got to figure out what year I think it might have been released. And all right. You like Tupperware? Uh, I bet you like clear things. Here's a chandelier. Be like, nope, nope, that's just a clear thing next to another clear thing. That's that's not related. Um, so. So you mean like with the exception of some of these collections on the network that they've put out that are like, here's a bunch of Bret Hart matches. You can't just like find all the Bret Hart matches with a simple search. Kind of, yeah. I guess that. I, I guess my point is that it's just you're you're using a really weird metric. It's almost like saying. What did you decide to browse on your TV today? And yes, if I watch what you browsed on your TV over the course of a day, I have a general idea of what you want. But if I get to watch what you choose on Netflix, I have a much better idea of what you want, right? Because one of them is is just kind of you being passive, like, okay, what can I find? All right, I'll watch this. The other one being a lot more aggressive, like, this is what I want to see. This is what I built a list on. This is where I'm going towards. And so I feel like they they've combined all this technology with such a crummy interface that they, they shoot themselves in the foot quite a lot with their ability to draw meaningful analytics in some cases. Now, they've also invested heavily in kind of trying to cross-reference it with consumer purchasing. And of course, this new WWE tier will hopefully kind of bring this integrated experience for an e-commerce platform to them, to a hub. But I, I just think sometimes it's funny that like you've invested all this money and in some ways you're, you're trying to interpret chicken bones. Um, again, he uses the word wrestling here to describe his wrestling database, not a sports entertainment database, not a global entertainment conglomerate super business database, but a wrestling database. And, um, I don't know. So in, in the clip we just played, he says this sentence, you know, we'll, we'll see what events you like to go to, where you like to sit if you're a network subscriber and it allows you to reward us in different ways. Our most valuable passionate fans like as if it's a reward to be so specifically and, you know, customizably marketed to. <laughs> Brandon is, Brandon is opting out. He's ad blocking. He's pie holing everybody here. But like, what, what is, what does that mean? Like it, it's, it's a reward for me as a consumer to have marketing that more directly targets me. And I think I, I get nervous about marketing, man. It's it's like manipulation sometimes. Is it a good thing to be marketed to, to be advertised to? I don't think so. so. He headquarters of Target is in town. So I work with a lot of ex-Target employees. And there's a famous story that was in one of the newspaper articles about Target. And it was basically about, um, so they sent out these catalogs to people, these uh, little Target uh, coupon books. Have you ever seen them? No. Do you know this story? No. Okay, so this, so I think it was a New York Times story where they're just basically talking about how good is Target at, at, at marketing to people. And what happened was, was um, Target yesterday. basically a guy got really angry, came in the store and he's like, why are you marketing, um, basically like a baby package to my daughter? Like, and then what it turned out is like, then two weeks later it came back. He's like, okay, you're right. My daughter's pregnant. And what it is, is like, there's certain purchasing behavior, like prenatal vitamins and, 
birth control tests and things like that, that, you know, pregnancy tests that, that, you know, will be really good indicators. But what they learn from all that is that if they show their hand at how good they are at marketing things, people get freaked out. So what they actually started to do was they made half the coupon book basically marketed towards you and half of it random or general marketing, just so that you wouldn't get the feeling like, oh my God, they know who I am. Because it's that feeling where they print out a coupon at the end of your transaction and they say, if you bought this, you might also like this. Um, but this is an entire coupon book that's just sent to you. And so it was, it was this whole idea where, where a lot of these people are dealing with the fact that they can actually market much better to you, but they know that it freaks people out, especially in the US, so that they intentionally try to obfuscate uh, how much they're doing on that. And so I, I work with a lot of people from Target who tell me stories like that. They're like, oh yeah, we know a lot about you, but we sometimes keep it a secret. And that's why it becomes so controversial when we have these big hacks of these companies. And then suddenly we discover all this information we never expected is being released to everyone. So when Marriott gets hacked and suddenly your passport number is somehow getting transmitted on, you're like, I didn't know that information was there. Yeah. So I, I guess it, it makes me worried that the, the more that businesses can market so effectively, so specifically to me, the, they don't have my interests at, at, as their first priority. Their, their interest is to help their business and to profit, make profits for their business, not to necessarily help or inform or educate me or give me a, a thing that's really going to help me in my life. Their, their interest is, is to just to get me to buy it so that their, their business continues to be sustainable and it produces even more money and profits. So like the more that they, that marketing can be done effectively and in a customized manner, uh, the more I think I'm at risk to be exploited, I guess. And, and for George Barrios to use, to use well, this, we this about word, it. almost on, and for George Barrios to use this word that it's a reward for, for his consumers just sounds, you know, wrong. Well, it's similar to the Facebook discussion we had where we were saying what drives the most engagement is usually outrage. And so we, we run these problems where a lot of these services, they do their best if they can get people worked up or they can show them content that they're already going to like. Mm -hmm. And so you, you do also wonder, like, if, if you're watching Hulk Hogan clips on YouTube from WWE, what's the chance you're going to get positive Hulk Hogan clips if you're watching the WWE feed versus things about him going on racist rants or bankrupting Gawker or doing other things. So on this YouTube be, video that I have open playing these George Rose clips right now, the first related video is Hulk Hogan comes clean about the wrestling business. Yeah. Um, but I think we discovered the most important thing uh, in, in minute 26 on this talk, which is basically what is George's next career choice? Okay. I don't think you're sufficiently alarmed about customized marketing, but okay, let's play this next clip. <laughs> we now produce a weekly live piece of content called 205 Live, 205 being the weight class of smaller uh, wrestlers, only available on WWE Network. I'm waiting for 175 Live, and then I'm going to try out for that, but at 205, a lot of fans like that. More athletic, uh, you know, cruiserweight. So, so I was just very amused that that we learned that that George, George uh, weighs 175 pounds, apparently, in his mind. Yeah, I guess that is what he's implying there, huh? Yeah. He's not working out. He needs to work out more with Vince in the, uh, the, uh, Stanford, uh, weight room. Yeah. <laughs> would, would you qualify for 175 live? Absolutely. I would not, but I should. As a shoot, as a shoot, I would. 
I think they, I get, I get an, I got announced last night is like 182, but I'm, I'm well under, under 175 at the moment. At the moment. I think, well, that, that may be like around my top weight all time, but yeah. So, uh, we hear a little bit about the where to tour NXT, something that's come up before. They use the network engagement data to basically try to guess who would buy tickets. They talk about uh, Weebda being, quote, their profit metric of choice. They yeah. say that a few times. I, I highlighted that twice because that that's a, a term that I've used, and that just uh, exposes to me that George has been reading my stuff. Profit, <laughs> I also pro- thought, profit metric of choice as a phrase. Yes, and it also exposes that it's not necessarily the most common uh, profit metric for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, they talk about investment priorities, which, as usual... They go through, you know, we want to invest in technology and emerging markets and global and international things of that nature. And then we get the questions. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a total of uh, one, two, three, four, five questions. You have time one for this? Was, pardon me? You have time for this? Uh, we, we have a moment for this. Okay. Uh, let me just say what the five questions were. One was UFC as a competitor. One was augmented reality. One was SmackDown moving to Fox. One was WWE secession. One was... Live event Q3 weakness. Um, augmented reality, not that interesting. Basically, just they talk about the fact that they have a venture fund and that they invest in in technology. And so they have invested in some technology in their venture fund. In fact, someone brought up to me that in Darren Roville's new column about the XFL, he brings up that DraftKings is, quote, a company that Vince has invested in. So yeah, there's a think... implication that that WWE has possibly invested in DraftKings, I think we which would go... We knew that? I think so. I don't know. I feel like they mentioned something about joining like a fantasy sports betting service yeah. at one in one of their um uh revelate in one of their filings. And then on top of that, we saw that DraftKings was the one that was partnering with WWE on some like SummerSlam promotions and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So it's not a big surprise. Um the UFC as a competitor thing is is very common answer. Uh, why don't we play it just because I feel like this is the question that people like to hear an answer to. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to, uh, uh, just say it and then have not people have the chance to hear what exactly he said when he was asked this. Uh, how does WWE view ultimate fighting from a competitive standpoint? You know, it's a little bit of a cliche now, but we, you know, we mean it. Um, when you're in the IP business, in essence, anything that takes up any amount of time is your competitor. Uh, so Fortnite's a competitor. So, uh, the NBA on Monday nights going up against uh, Raw is a competitor. Ryan's toy review on YouTube is a competitor because it's taking time and attendance that could come to us. So when you go specifically to uh, Ultimate Fighting, you know, there's the, uh, it feels a little bit closer in because it's got a ring, I guess. Uh, but yeah, for us, it does, it's not a unique competitor. You know, it, it really is anything that takes time. Um, we view as a competitive threat. You know, the, I always quote Reed, who said, um, you know, we view sleep as a competitor. We view sleep as a competitor. So keep you up at night. Yeah. So first of all, UFC does not have a ring. It has an octagon. Has an octagon or a yes. fence, not a cage, though. a fence. Second, uh, do you like how he always refers to his ultimate fighting? It, it, it may have been how the question was phrased, and we could not hear the the, the person asking the question. But yeah, I, I do wonder though, in the language of things, like if it makes if it's better to call yourself WWE 
and then you call them ultimate fighting because that's a very prerogatory name yeah versus calling it ufc sounds like a brand ultimate yeah. fighting sounds like a very barbaric sport yeah I, th- uh, I think especially in like the early days of UFC where there were, you know, cable news segments about it or whatever and people talking human about human cockfighting. Yeah. And then like that, that, like terms like that were used alongside ultimate fighting. Yeah. What, what's funny to me is going back to your point earlier, when he said, what are my big three areas? Number one was basically getting this content right on television, mm-hmm. like the, the, the value of live entertainment. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, do I really think Fox Sports is going to buy Brian's Tory review and put it on their 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 station? No. Do I think that uh you know they're going to put Fortnite on their station? Probably not. Is Fortnite Hard a video game? Anyway, Fortnite is a very popular video game. Okay. Why would you put it on a TV station? Okay. Anyway. Yeah, but my point is that to pretend that Ultimate Fighting is not one of your biggest competitors when it comes for TV rights mm-hmm. is a little self-serving because in fact, you could argue their Fox deal was incredibly predicated on the fact that ultimate fighting was their competitor. Their competitor pissed off Fox sports and almost as a, a, well, we'll buy something else that's cheaper. WWE got the rub. Mm-hmm. So w- um, w- what's the real answer here is that, I don't know. They're very similar in that, uh, they're a, uh, another sort of fighting brand, but you know, we, and then we have uh, similar TV rights deals and things like that. Like what, what is it? And we built them. We, we were directly responsible for the ab for the attrition of our audience and feeding into UFC's growth. And that an enormous percentage of our, our um, ability to create stars in most recent years has been built on the back of UFC between um, uh, Brock Lesnar, Ronda Rousey, and um, even to the degree that we're we're massively trying to get Conor McGregor involved with our business right now, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's a lot to be said there. I, I I mean, yeah, they are their own things. They are their own businesses. But uh, it's funny. And the other part is that he's on a first name basis with uh, Reed Hastings from Netflix now. Mm-hmm. He just refers to him as Reed. That does sound like a Vince quote, though. That sleep is the enemy. Sleep is the enemy is a Vince quote for sure, but um, but it, it, but he's talking Reed Hastings. I'm almost sure yeah, in that situation because so. yeah. he always talks about how obsessed he is with re- with Netflix. That's right. Netflix doesn't want you to sleep; they want you to watch Netflix. This is another danger here. Okay. Yeah, customized marketing, um, no sleep. SmackDown moving to Fox. They talk about you know the fact that uh, yeah, the the number one show of all time. That's that's Raw. Number two is SmackDown, and we're going, and it's going to be better for all of us. It's a rising rising tide for everyone. So you can see that they're already playing that game where they have to kind of make it seem like it's a good thing that USA Network has a competitor that is going to be airing their programming and that they just want to say it's going to make everybody more popular when when it expands out. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to listen to the secession talk. Um, I know it's a little bit long, but maybe we can just listen to a, a little bit of it because that's that's such a big question is who is going to take over for Vince? Right. So the question was around succession. Uh, yeah, as you rightfully pointed out, um, Vince McMahon founded the company um, when he bought what was then uh, uh, Northeast uh, touring business from his father. Uh, so the current incarnation of WWE about 30 years ago. Uh, in WWE today, uh, Vince's daughter, Stephanie, is our chief brand officer and also uh, talent from time to time. She's someone people love to hate. On TV, not in the office, on TV. Um, and then Vince's son-in-law, Paul Levesque, who is 
uh, one of our most iconic talents, Triple H, uh, is a core part of uh, the creative process at WWE. So he, he runs our entire ta- talent development. So the acquisition, retention, and development of WWE talent uh, falls underneath him. And in fact, the step change that we've had in the pipeline of talent is over the last six, seven years is really largely attributable to Paul's vision. He took what was a good process and good infrastructure for doing that and kind of elevated it to something that's world-class. I mean, world-class when compared to uh, all the sports properties uh, in the world. So they're, they're um, within WWE today. So succession planning is something the board co- continuously discusses. Um, I think, you know, as we always say, uh, you know, Vince, you know, the, the real unique thing Vince has done is not just build a great business, uh, but created an infrastructure that we believe kind of is enduring uh, past one person. Uh, it's a broad and deep team across the core functions, you know. And how to- yeah. So stepping around the question, obviously, very heavily, very funny how he you know, doesn't ever mention Michelle, doesn't ever mention himself, just talks about Vince's kids. Yeah. I mean, he mentions the infrastructure. I think that's sort of mentioning him, mentioning himself he, and, and Michelle Wilson. I mean, you wouldn't even know Michelle was the co-president here Yeah, in this talk. I don't think her name comes up once. No. Um, it, it's very clear that he's, he's, he knows where his bread is buttered and it's best for him to play, play down. Mm-hmm. I would also say when you listen to this, well, if Stephanie is chief brand officer, and Paul is talent. Mm-hmm. Sounds like they've got enough to do. So who's responsible for making decisions like whether or not to go to Saudi Arabia? George and Michelle. Sounds like George and Michelle should play a big role in that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's that sort of thing where it's kind of like sometimes it feels like you talk a lot about what everyone else is trying to do. But then when you talk about the hard decisions, shouldn't you be the one having to step up? Be like, yeah, that was me. Yeah, we decided to do that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, just just some thoughts there. Well, the end last question that George took on was about live event Q3 weakness, which is, again, as we said earlier, something that that apparently is not a big deal to WWE because social media, that's where it's at. Live event attendance, you know, people actually showing up and watching your product, that's that's irrelevant. But uh, there was a question about it. And of course, as we had noted, they had one of the weakest quarters for live event North American attendance in a decade depending on whether you're including the ECW years in 2006, uh, it gets a little fuzzier. But in general, we found it went back at least 10 years since they've had a quarter quite this bad. I think we had to go back to 2005 to find a quarter that was as low as with a North American, uh, North American average attendance as Q3 was for this year. Yeah. And, and as I said, what they, they mess with the numbers a little bit because they have one set of numbers they used for a while. And then they switched them when they killed ECW. They decided to restate the numbers without ECW in them. Mm. So it depends on if you're looking at the quarter that they reported at the time or what then they reported a year later when then they're like, it excludes ECW. Mm-hmm. So they messed with the numbers. So I, I think the reality is that there was a couple years in maybe even 2006 that were a little bit worse. Um, cause I was going through the numbers for a different project one time and I kind of started to see some discrepancies between what you had and what I had. Oh. And I'm pretty sure that's what, what drove it is that you were using the numbers of what kind of the scrub numbers that they used later on. Mm-hmm. But, uh, either way, 10 years is probably a pretty good measure. Now that said, they run a lot of shows today. You can always pull back on the number of shows that you're running. You're still running Monday night house shows, 
of the SmackDown crew versus the Raw crew. You know, you're running two different brands. There's a lot you could do to improve very quickly if you really wanted to. Um, but when George was asked at the 36-minute mark, here's what he had to say. question was, can you discuss uh, some of the softness you saw in the quarter and live event? Um, and I'll start with the second part of your question, I think, was have you seen it happen before? And we have. You know, there's an ebb and flow um, to the entire business, but to the creative element of, that underpins the business that will manifest itself in, in, in live event attendance. Um, so, yeah, we've seen it before, and we've seen kind of this ebb and flow. Uh, the other element um, is, you know, we, we do close to 350 events a year, more than we ever have. Um, number one, of the main roster, and then we do it 150 to 200 events of our development league, NXT. So we do a lot of events, which then leads a little bit to that normal variation. But, yeah, as we talk down the call, you know, we don't like when any number is down. Uh, so there, there's a whole group of people uh, really focused on that. The other thing we like to point people to is there's a lot of um, – All right. That's the gist of it, right? Hmm. Can't hear you anymore. There's a there's one <laughs> he says right after that. He says, uh, there's one other thing we like to point people to, that there's a lot of metrics or KPIs we look at. We measure engagement. Attendance is one of them. Probably the one that's most expansive in real time is our digital metrics. So, you know, when we talk about these metrics, and then he goes on and on. So a, a little bit of it is the, the, the game of, well, you know, people might not be showing up in person, but virtually they're spending time with their eyeballs with us. And that's what counts in the end is hitting that like button on, on Twitter is just as good as paying the forty four ninety five to actually show up and buy a ticket to the event. Mm -hmm. Is that what he's saying? And also, you know that they've never run more than 350 events ever. In George's time, that's probably true since 2008, since he's been with the company. Yeah. This yeah, is the only but, time uh, that he's really concerned with is when he gives these talks. In his experience, that's that's the universe that he lives in. Yeah, but uh, what if we were to tell him about that tiny little Northeast touring company that uh, used to uh, uh, tour? That wasn't a global media entertainment company that was selling video all over the world, though. Yeah, and that's that's always something that is is entertaining to me too. Is that uh, a lot of times I'll talk about these international deals. And then I'll hear from people who maybe were with the company or, or have followed the company a lot longer. And they'll be like, we did our first deal in China in like 2000. So the notion that this PPTV deal was some kind of, you know, breakthrough for us is a little bit exaggerated and things like that. Where you'd be like, oh, well, that's kind of interesting to know. But um, anyhow, uh, I, I just thought it was an interesting answer, as always, from George. Um, again... You know, it's clear that they are a little concerned. We'll be very curious to see how Q4 stacks up to last time's Q4. Um, I guess I should have looked up that number in the back of my head to see what, what number they have to beat for next. But the good news for them is, you know, they are going to bring Cena back, I think, at the very end for that uh, December house show run, if I'm not mistaken. The holiday tour, which is always yeah. big business. It is usually very good business for them. So um, it, it should work out for them, I'm sure. And the, the, they'll have the Australia show and some other, and the Saudi Arabia show to make some international numbers look really good. And maybe even the live event numbers look really good. So even if attendance is down, they can just say, Hey, look at how much money we made this quarter. And, uh, he would be wondering about that way. Q4 average North America live attendance last year yeah. was 5,400 year before that 5,300. 
So they got to be well north of 5,000 if they want to uh, um, have a quarter that doesn't look, look and smell a little funny with two in a row. Um, but it just, go, again, goes to speak to the divergence between the stock price and the true interest in WWE at times. Yeah, And, and again, last quarter was 4,500 down from the previous year's Q3, 4,900. The year before that, 5,300. And as I think I talked about on the show, when you take that number and you say, okay, let's put pay-per-view and TV and things over here and let's put, you know, house shows over there, you know, you get to a much more real number of, of the, what was it, 3,000 or 4,000 house show um, as their actual number. And it was kind of showing all house shows seemed like they were kind of uh, down quarter over quarter. Mm -hmm. It was the TV that seemed to be up, if anything, up quarter over quarter. But yeah, it's good talk from George. Uh, UBS, I, I'm not sure how many years he's been doing this. I want to say this is at least his fifth year, because I'm pretty sure I covered it in 2013, right before he did the WWE Network launch, um, that he spoke at UBS. So I want to say at least 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and possibly even before that. So that is that is one of Barrios's biggest legacies in my mind is his commitment to getting WWE into all these investor talks to try to get people's attention and uh, talk more. And I see Brennan's eyes on his screen frantically moving around as he, he looks up some piece of information. No, no, what I was just, just, just putting, putting the notes up and closing some no longer needed tabs. That's all. Got it. Got it. Um, so the other things I want to talk about, I did a little trademark study um, last night mm. Uh, I posted it yesterday morning, um, and uh, basically I was talking about what does WWE trademark? So over the last 365-ish days, what have they trademarked? And the challenge with trademarks is that they're delayed a little bit. Like, really, there's nothing from November that WWE has registered new that is in the system yet, which means I don't know whether they didn't register anything in November or it just hasn't shown up in the the, the search archive yet. So I kind of went from November of 2017 through today. So it's maybe a little bit more than 12 months. Mm -hmm. But what was fascinating to me was um, of the 230 trademarks that had significant activity and significant activity means either you registered it, you published it, or you filed it, or you abandoned it during those time. Um, when you break it down, what did they register in? They really only register in nine different categories. They register in... Um, I'm sorry, eight different categories. They register entertainment services. That was 156 of the 230. So that was the vast majority of, of the things that they register is entertainment services, which is usually just the, this is a wrestler. This is a wrestling program. This is a, a thing to entertain you. There's 32 clothing related um, uh, registrations. There were 16 toy related registrations. There was 13 pre-recorded media. So DVDs and whatnot. There were seven Laziness. posters. There's three duffel bags. There was one community outreach uh, called The Hero and All of Us. They also had another one they did uh, about a year ago called Kids for Kids with Z's in it, which was some kind of cancer charity. Um, and then they did one broadcasting IP. Only one. Are you looking at, at my post here right now? WVVIP. Yeah. So if you remember, I, I called that out when I saw that one. I said, this feels funny to me. This doesn't feel like all the other registrations. This feels like something that they might be using for the WWE Network. And I went back and I looked. And in fact, it is the exact same class of trade. It's the same um, international class 
that WWE Network was registered under. And it's not a common one for them to register under. Like other TV shows or other things that they do, like Talking Snack, the YouTube show, that lives under entertainment services. That doesn't live under this broadcasting thing. So this is so it. I, this is the name of the tier, the premium tier, WVIP. That's my guess. That's my prediction. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think it makes a lot of sense for it to be. Um, so they filed 89 new trademarks in the last 12 months. Um, they had 32 of them that were published, which is kind of like the next phase after filing. Then you had 64 that were registered. You had 45 that were abandoned, meaning, um, and this is something that people don't always understand. Basically, when you register a trademark, you're saying, I'm going to use this. Well, the thing the trademark office comes back to you and says, okay, prove to me you use this if you get it uh, approved. And they call that a statement of use. And so if you get your first statement of use, you can also apply for an extension. You can say, I'm not ready yet. Please give me more time. So you can keep applying for these extensions, but there's a limit to how many extensions you can apply for. And so 29 were abandoned because no statement of use or extension request timely filed after notice of allowance was issued. So basically they said, show us your statement of use. WWE either didn't file something that was an acceptable statement of use, or they didn't file anything at all or they didn't file an extension request. Oftentimes they'll file the extension request and then they'll just let it lapse. And then sometimes they'll come back and re-register it, just start from the beginning again. Um, 14 were um, abandoned because the applicant failed to respond or filed a late notice to an office action. That's usually more the, you file a statement of, of use and then they come back and they say, I don't agree that this is a valid use of that statement of use. It gets really technical because a lot of times what they're doing is they're filing screenshots from their website to prove that a, a, a wrestler name is in use. And then a lot of times then the, they're coming back and they're being like, well, that's an individual. It doesn't actually say exactly what you said this did. And they kind of go back and forth until they can find something that they agree on. Um, one was abandoned due to an incomplete response. The response did not satisfy all issues in office response. That was for the golden truth, mm-hmm. which uh, again, uh, a trademark that I don't think they're too worried about losing. But um, it, basically, that sounds like to me like the two sides were going back and forth and they couldn't come to an agreement on on resolving. Also, that name Golden Truth makes me sound like it could be one of those that's really hard for them to get because it's so broad sounding that there's so many other trademarks that might be very similar. So they had to kind of prove that they were avoiding all those others, stepping on everyone else's toes. And then one was abandoned because the applicant filed express abandonment. So that basically means WWE very quickly put in a re- a request to say, please ignore this application. And the reason they did that was because of Samoa Joe. And Samoa Joe wins my uh, smartest wrestler of the year award because Samoa Joe, all the way back in 2006, he registered entertainment services, posters, pre-recorded media. Um, it, in 2017, he registered clothing, toys. He has all his stuff under his name. It goes to, I can't even say his name. It's like, Nufolo Joel Sinoa. Uh, but it goes to him. And so I was like, smart, smart guy. So WWE can still put out toys, but they go probably through some agreement process that he put in his contract that basically said, you're going to use my trademarks. It's my IP. I have whatever it is rights to this. So W tried to trademark Samoa Joe. They did. In this, in very recently. So when, when did this happen? March 9th, 2018. And as soon as it happened, I called it out on Twitter and I was like, this is going to be interesting. And by March 15th of 2018, they dropped it. So, so it's so very somebody, possible it was clerical oversight. So somebody that, in WWE doesn't know that 
Samoa Joe, the, re- the real person, owns his own name. Yeah. That's so, what it seems like. So do you think if, if they knew that, if, if there was enough awareness about this within WWE, like, do they let him use that name? Is that a, you know, wouldn't you think that would be a factor? Like, the day he shows up or debuts on NXT TV, you're like, wait, wait a minute, he owns his own name, let's make him use a different name. You'd think so. I mean, they went as far as he registered the clothing and the uh, toys IP in March 8th, 2017. Mm-hmm. So this was very recent that he did all this. Oh, he did um, this while that, he was working for WWE. Well, the the clothing and the toys one, he had already registered um, a couple others, like the first go around, uh, I, like in 2006. So he came in with entertainment services already registered. And so basically he had, he had gotten a lot of this lockdown before his TNA run is what it really was. So, you know, this was WWE IP oversight where they just thought they could register it. To be honest, they wouldn't have gotten very far because the trademark office immediately would say, we found another example of a, a trademark called this. You can't have it. Mm-hmm. And it would end it there. Um, I saw one the other day. Uh, they, they abandoned one for something called The Rock and it was a t-shirt. Uh, wasn't, didn't have a logo, didn't have anything. It was just called The Rock. They wanted to trademark it for clothing. And it was thrown out because in 1985, uh, University of Pennsylvania registered The Rock as a clothing thing for like, you know, some nickname for a sports team or something. And so they own it. And so they're just like, no, you can't have The Rock as the name of a, a t-shirt. You can have, you know, Rock Just Bring It or other stuff like that. But you can't just have a, a trademark on, on basically the name The Rock. But for Samoa Joe, this doesn't prevent WWE from selling his merchandise or anything, does it? In a sense, it or would. Does it but discourage my, them? But my from guess is that they made an agreement in his contract that said, "I will license you the rights of my trademark. I will allow you to use it." But maybe he gets a better trade. I mean, he might get better royalties on that. He could just get the power to, at all times, you know, um, retract or approve any usage of it. I don't know what it means. I mean, my guess is he probably signed a pretty open-ended contract where it's vague in the sense where basically it's clear that all the rights will revert to him if he leaves the company, but then WWE just does everything normal. Yeah. I doubt he gets a super-duper royalty structure, I mean, but th- maybe. That, that's the big thing, right, is that, okay, once you're done, if you leave WWE, you still get to use your name. Is there any other benefit to a wrestler for keep you know trademarking their own name other than that? Well, in theory, are there hazards like is going to own that trademark? You know, I, and I, again, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know for sure. But my guess is Be that no you also have the rights to decide what deals to take. Now, he probably signed a deal that was exclusive with WWE. But in theory, whatever the deal you decide to do is, you know, maybe that he could have a different deal. Maybe, you know, there is those kind of situations where like pro wrestling tees will sell things and you'll think, wow. Isn't it odd that this WWE wrestler has this gear on pro wrestling tees? Mm-hmm. And what's that relationship? And, you know, it's hard to say. And it could be that if you were your own wrestler, maybe you would be allowed to do that. So, um, I mean, is there a risk? Um, the only risk is that WWE might be less inclined to deal with you because they don't like to deal with people of their own IP. Uh, and that they might be less inclined to put out things for you because they're afraid of stepping on your toes and then having you come back and complain. And they might be afraid of if you've already, for instance, you remember when Kevin Steen uh, signed with WWE, he had already done an action figure deal with like oh, Malibu toys or whatever. Yeah. And that became a whole hullabaloo because it was like, well, his first action figures are not WWE action figures and that's going to get WWE all pissed off. But 
that was the deal he had made. He had signed those rights to someone. So, is, is doing something like this leverage for WWE to argue, well, we don't need to pay you as much because you're not allowing us to have the rights to your name? I don't think they would ever do that. I think it would come more down to, this is why we don't want to call you this. But, you know, it, they could also be, this is the, look, it's going to take us a long time to work through this contract. Uh, and then just they use that as a stalling tactic, good or bad. You know, because that could be used as a way to say, hey, we really can't let you out of your contract yet because it's just too complex for us to deal with these royalty issues and all that. Mm-hmm. Or, hey, look, we can't sign you right now because of this. And so it, it's it's probably just another lever. But honestly, we're we're entering the era where more and more wrestlers are getting involved with high priced agents and professionals. And they're being treated much more the way that other brands and other actors and people do. And so it's, it's, you know, like I said, AJ Styles has a similar situation. CM Punk got his trademarks uh, back, sent back to him when he finished with WWE. The Miz has some of his own stuff. Jericho owns a little bit of his own stuff. So there's a number of people who are, are getting into this world. So would you recommend, especially in this era of all these contracts being offered and signed, that wrestlers sort of like as soon as they can afford it or as soon as they really get some traction and think that maybe they're going to be signed, they should put out a trademark, trademark their name. Well, the first thing I'd say is that if it's your own name, you're never going to lose your own name. If it's your legal name. It is your own legal name. They can never stop you. They can never say Brandon. So I have nothing to worry about. If that's your true God-given name. If that is my real name. Uh, they, they can't. But they could have a Mookie Harrington because that is not my given name. That's your so. real last name, though. It is my given last name, but it's not my given first name. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, obviously, like Cody Rhodes, you can't, he can be Cody. No one can stop him from being Cody, mm-hmm. but they can't, they can't necessarily, uh, the name Cody Rhodes was trademarked by WWE. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have prior use before WWE files a trademark for you, you always have that ability to try and contest something. But again, it's always going to be legal resources, right? So just because you could fight something doesn't mean you are going to be able to fight something or will fight something. Um, do I advise people to take their own trademarks? Yeah, I do. I really do. Because I think if you put that power in your hand, it's going to make it a lot easier for you to decide how, how you are managed and that you're not going to run that risk. Now, it's not that expensive, is it? What's that? It's not that expensive. Um, it's a few hundred dollars of filings. It's some time. It's some commitment. There's statements of use and other things that you'd have to do. Mm -hmm. Um, most wrestlers aren't going to know how to do this, but if they figured it out, it would not be that time-consuming or expensive and there's a lot of services that do it it would probably cost you a thousand maybe more you know when when i've talked about my wife maybe opening up like a boutique law thing this would be exactly the sort of thing she would do would probably be like help people register Ser- trademarks for ser- their services for uh, emerging independent wrestlers it would be one of the packages we'd offer we'd call it the the uh the the if you use the wrestlenomics uh code <laughs> we we you would uh get a discount on yes. your your trademarks and uh we'll, we'll any trademark up to nine letters <laughs> yes. yes go go to simple contacts first but after that yeah but uh it's funny just like looking at all this stuff when you go through it all and and on the the reddit thread that i posted this on you can go and see all the different things that have come up and there's even a spreadsheet that i link to it where I pulled up the first about 300 different filings. I put what class it's from. I put what date all the different dates actions happened is. Um, but one of the biggest ones they want is Skull King. That's They have registered 
this name for clothing, pre-recorded media, entertainment services, bags. They've registered it both in 2016 and in 2014 and in 2018 and in 2014. They've registered a lot of these over and over again because they haven't used it quite. And it's clear that it's like, I think it's a Triple H yeah. gimmick is what it is for. But uh, they really want that name Skull King. And then uh, the fact that they did like that King Kong from Skull Island, I don't think that helped them because that that also kind of created more examples of Skull and King Kong and things together. So, you know, that made it a little fuzzier. It looks like um, it, it's it, when I when I Google Skull King WWE, I get a bunch of images of like the look that, tri- that, that Triple H has in, in one of those WrestleMania entrances with with the yeah. skull and the crown and the chains that are like in place of hair and he's like in WWE Immortals and the, the mobile game. And WWE Immortals exactly I think they did a game and that might have even been a character or a move or something in it looks like there's some Funko Pops with Triple H Skull King Skull King yeah so I think that's what they're calling his like Conan the Barbarian knockoff look yeah. is the Skull King look mm-hmm. um, they also really wanted to do a Project Rock Total Bellas Ch- Clash of Champions there's a whole lot of filings related to those things which I think Clash of Champions is the weirdest one. That's not the one I would have thought that they would really be pushing so hard for. But uh, they're doing a lot of that. There's a lot of Bella ones. There's Bella Appetite. There's Bella Body, Bella Style, Bella Glam, Total Bellas. So WWE is deep with the Bellas um, is really what my takeaway here. And if you want to talk about someone who could be in a situation someday, much like they were the ones where you leave the company and suddenly all these trademarks are not in your name, and it's going to be harder for you to uh, go on because, you know, the what is what is the Bella's re- the, real the, last name? Yeah, the real last names are not Bella. Yeah, it's isn't like it uh, Garcia? Garcia or something like that? Um, yeah, Gar- Garcia Colas. Yeah, so it's, it's not a um, – yeah, so, I mean, they're one where, to me, this is a great sign of when is WWE invested in you? You can kind of tell partially by how many trademarks do they bother to file on your behalf. Mm-hmm. So uh, I always find it funny when we talk about, you know, the women's revolution and then you're like, you know what, what uh woman in WWE they've spent the most time investing in the Bella twins. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that was also always my argument for why I thought Daniel Bryan would stay with the company mm-hmm. was just because his wife is too integrated for them to possibly walk away easily. But yeah, there's a, a list of a couple hundred um, different things that came up and you can just go through it and you can see, they abandoned Ho Ho Lun and James Ellsworth and uh, Southpaw Regional Wrestling, but only one of the like 10 Southpaw Regional Wrestling ones they did. So, you know, it's it's always interesting to go through and just also see like which names finally fell off. A good example was uh, Feed Me More and The Big Guy both fell off as names. So in theory, I think Ryback could actually uh, go back to using some of those if you wanted. So Ryback, if you're listening. Get out yeah. there and get get those catchphrases. And the biggest one, uh, registered May eleventh, twenty sixteen, abandoned twelve twenty. I'm sorry, uh, 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 red filed five eleven. Uh, moved to the next point at twelve twenty, and then abandoned on nine seventeen. I'm sorry to say, everyone, Lady Balls has in fact uh been uh put to bed for both pre recorded media, posters, entertainment services, and toys. So this is the Stephanie McMahon autobiography. What's going on I, with that book? Did was, did we ever actually confirm it was going to be called Lady Balls? Or was that just a... a, a I, I feel like there was actually a, an announcement at some point. Well, regardless, right? she was working on a book and she's like tweeted about this or, you know, 
yeah. said stuff about no, it publicly. I, I do feel like at some point she really did. Say, yeah, she did really say her name was going to be called Lady Balls. Yep. Mm. Um, her her name. Her no, she 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 title. later uh, tweeted that like after like a year, she was like, "Well, I've, I've we've made the decision to postpone putting postpone. the book out." Yeah. So I don't know exactly what what that was all about, but yeah, that was like almost at the same time as like the whole women's revolution push was coming about that she kind of put it on hold because so. I, I got the impression that like the book was done like the maybe it had to be edited or something but it was well, gonna come out like october I, of last year i think well, that's the thing is so i got the impression that basically she took like probably a signing bonus or an agreement to like write the book she worked on it they put out a published date for it they put yeah. out a date that the book was going to be released by and then it just started to kind of get pushed back and so you never know, is, is that one of those things where they just made the decision ahead of time, like, hey, this is when we want to release it? Or was it one of these where, like, they actually got the book and they said, I can't use this? Or was it that they kind of said, you know, it doesn't make any sense for, like, a, what is she, 39, maybe a 40-year-old woman to write this book right now when she, she the story isn't really feel like it's got a natural ebb flow conclusion, right point. And, you know, she's a mom she's she's an employee she's a very busy person so uh maybe she'll it publish be... it in like two parts it'd be like an epic bret hart style autobiography that's right did bret ever write a second half was he supposed to i don't know like it kind of felt like there was more but uh yeah it's just been very interesting like when you go through all the names especially when you go through like which names got abandoned like Bodellis and adam rose and big red and the redneck wrecking company and uh <laughs> lunatic fringe as toys uh and that's the biggest thing too is which i would always remind people is um don't just look at the name look at what class of trade is being registered in because otherwise people get freaked out they're like what do you mean rock is not a you know is not a trademark i'll be like rock the words the rock for a piece of piece of clothing that is what what they decided not to follow through with and like i say a lot of times it's just because they don't bother to respond to like the complaints from the uh um, the trademark office because WWE, I think I, I tweeted this out maybe a week or two ago. They were, they were like number 22 for like most trademarks registered in the U S in the last year. Hmm. So, I mean, they, they are very, um, voluminous compared to a lot of the other companies out there that do this. Mm -hmm. So, but Dr. Shelby has been registered. So worry not British strong style has been registered. Uh, uh, New Japan just actually did another registration, which is unusual for them because they do very few. Mm -hmm. But uh, New Japan just registered one called Son of Strong Style, which I'm guessing is maybe an LA Dojo thing. Doesn't could, that sound kind of like a? Could be. You know, like they they wear like a you know can't you imagine them all wearing like little jumpsuits that are say we're the Sons of Strong Style? Sure. I'm, I'm furiously googling Son of Strong Style and JPWC at that produces anything interesting um you'll, well, you, you'll see the filing that's most of it right yeah yeah i just see news i, I just see tweets from mukiana basically <laughs> but it's out there so i mean i i'm breaking the news still brandon even in my even in my semi-retirement of december where i'm i'm pulling back i'm only working half as hard mm -hmm. so so we talk yeah. about scholarly articles yeah, scholarly articles. I've been I went on a real kick this week, mm -hmm. um, where I typed in like pro wrestling into Google Scholar, and then I would filter it for just 2018, and I'd filter it just for 2017. 
Then I'd filter it just before 1990. Then I do Jim Londos. Then I do Bruno Sammartino. And so I found a whole bunch of different ones. Wow. Uh, and so you find both the great articles. Then you find things that have nothing to do with pro wrestling that just have the words professional and wrestling in them. Mm-hmm. And then so it'll be anything from a uh, Chinese sheep wrestling to um, Turkish oil wrestling and, and how it's rigged um, to uh, one was about management styles and Iranian wrestling camps. And what was the best way to get everyone to get along with each other? Um, and then just weird, weird things. But um, I, I called out, you know, some different articles last week. And um, I wanted to call out probably five new articles this week um, that I really enjoyed. Uh, number one was was a um, journal, Physics Special Topics. It's an undergraduate physics journal. And it's called uh, Falling from Hell, parentheses, in a cell. Uh, from, uh, University of, uh, I don't know, is it Leicester? Leicester? It's a British university. Leicester. Brits are going to be pulling their hair out listening to me to pronounce this. Uh, but anyways, it's basically a Shane McMahon falls off the cell, uh, calculation on the downward force and the drag and, and trying to conclude, does the table help him? And the answer is yes. And, uh, it doesn't seem like it necessarily, it treats, it doesn't necessarily treat him as, uh, for instance, a, uh, you know, the, the rotational, uh, inertia and things of that nature, which would also have been interesting to look at. But it's, it's just a funny document because there's a little stick man graph of him falling off the cell onto the table. Yeah. And then it just says diagram showing the different stages of Shane McMahon's fall with annotations on the forces acting. So this is a six meter fall, apparently, according to this diagram. Oh, that was their guess. That was their guess. Yeah. Well, mm. It's a 5.25 meter fall because he hits a table that is 0.75 ah. meters off the ground. Okay. Well, the, so the, the cell wall they're estimating is six meters high. Yeah. Which so. seems okay. Feet. Yeah. yeah okay. That, that doesn't seem that outrageous. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We usually think of it about 20 feet off the ground, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, um, but yeah, I just thought that was entertaining. So that's one. And all of these, you can go to Reddit. There's something called Mookie's Roundup of Scholarly Papers, Top Five Picks. I have a whole bunch of others that were interesting, but these were just the, the ones that were somewhat new to me that I enjoyed. Um, there's a 1987 article from Working Papers in Educational Linguistics uh, from the University of Pennsylvania called Will You Know Mean Gene? The Professional Wrestling Interview. And this person went through all the speech characteristics of the pro wrestlers in uh, 1987 WWF television. And uh, just imagine doing this in 1987. So you're, you're, it's funny because at like one point they note that uh, Jake Roberts has been in the WWF too short of a time to judge his status of whether he's a heel or a face. Um, no, no, they're saying that he's a baddie. He's got to be for baddie. It's, it's yeah. his status, which I guess is like his place on the card. Yeah, there's a pu- couple different things here. There's good or bad status, size, length of membership in WWF, volume, pitch, intensity, speed, in type of interview, was it one, mainly introductory? Number two, an interaction between Mean Gene and the guest? Or number three, a solo by the wrestler? I imagine these and are all like the 1987 uh, interviews, really like the solid WF logo in the background and Mean Gene just taking them all in one by one, right? It was pretty funny because they, 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 they're like, Hulk Hogan is good. Jake Roberts is bad. Don mm-hmm. Morocco is bad. Mm-hmm. And then they have George Steele, F. And they say, he's a freak. He's neither. He's just, he's just out he's there. He's a freak. So yeah, I I thought that was really entertaining. Um, I found I found 19- the pitches interesting. Uh, George Animal Steel and Randy Savage are marked very low. They have a very low pitch. 
of course, Jimmy Hart high and uh, Adrian Adonis high. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, what was, one of them was like uh, intensity and speed and Roddy Piper is at the top of those two. Yep. Along with Mr. T, which uh, I would agree on those. Mr. T interview is pretty intense, pretty fast. Yeah, no, I, this is interesting to think about, like, all these different ways of cutting a promo, and there's different voices and characters. That's, that's a real thing to think about. So I hope when you go to Grapplers this week, you right. uh, you say, well, you know. I'll print this out for them. Lynn, Lynn Coddington, uh, in her seminal 1987 article, that's right. identified this matrix here. And I'm going to be judging you all using this mm-hmm. various amounts. Mm-hmm. So I was just very amused by this. As Coddington um, said in 1987. Yeah. Uh, there's a 2018 article from a, a number of different uh, authors, and it's called Contest Competition in Men's Facial Hairs. Beards May Not Provide Advantages in Combat. And um, unfortunately, I haven't been able to get a copy of the actual article yet, but I did find a review of the article on another website, which had read the article, and they noted that as part of this, uh, they ranked, I, I guess they looked at UFC fights and they ranked the UFC fighters beards on a scale of one to nine with like nine being the bushiest, manliest, you know, Grizzly Adams, Hillbilly Jim type beard. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I, I imagine Champa would probably get like at least an eight or a nine mm-hmm. on, on his. Uh, so, and basically they wanted to figure out, are you a better fighter when you have a beard? Like it provides uh, padding? Well, I think that was part of it, or if it maybe has something to do with like the testosterone, you know, whether you have more aggression because you're more able to grow facial hair and but you something. Could be I don't shaving. know. Again, this was in the Evolution and Human Behavior um, journal, so I'm sure if if you read the whole thing, it will explain why they thought for some reason they they would be linked. So this is focused um, on MMA. Yeah, they said beards are the most visually salient and sexually dysmorphic or dimorphic of a men's secondary sexual traits and play a strong role in communicating masculinity, dominance, aggressiveness, intrasexually. Wow. I'm going to shave after this podcast. <laughs> so they wanted to see whether or not uh, the beard functions as a protective organ. Uh, they would succumb to fewer knockouts and they would have less injuries to the jaw, fewer abrasions, lacerations to the face and brain damage as compared to clean shaven fighters. Hmm. Uh, and so basically they came up with the answer of, yeah, we looked at all this and it, we saw no correlation, mm-hmm. but, uh, I was just very amused by the idea of being like, well, uh, as I go into scouting my next wrestling match, I will know whether or not the beard is in fact a deterrent. I guess they completely ignored the whole idea of pulling on the beard, which is a, a, a very common, uh, popular way to get things. Mm-hmm. And then the very last and one. Now for the um, main event. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll do the main event last. Okay. Uh, one right before that right. was called uh, Wrestling to Understand Fan Motivations, okay. Examining the MSCC with the, with the WWE. Okay. And this is one where they, they basically asked a bunch of people who were uh, – uh, this was in the Journal of Entertainment and Media Studies. And they, I think they went on Twitter and they tried to find people who were talking about wrestling and then they just basically said, do you want to do a survey? And so they asked them about things like what do you enjoy about wrestling? And, uh, they gave kind of different categories that you could go between. And, um, in the end, they kind of had three groups of where people landed in terms of this was a low part of their satisfaction. This was a medium part of their satisfaction. This was a high part of satisfaction. And again, this speaks to kind of, you know, when people feel very differently about, is it, um, 
why do you watch wrestling? Not, not a, not everyone's going to necessarily agree, right? So it, it seems very interesting. But they basically said the low reason was, quote, physical attractiveness and vicarious achievement. And I thought that was interesting because I would always say that those would be the two things that people that don't watch wrestling who think they know why other people watch wrestling would say is the reason they watch wrestling, right? And, and by low, you mean this is the least reason. Yeah, but I would say it's the thing that people oftentimes would, would imagine it is. They'd be like, right. oh, well, you're vicariously living through them, right? Yeah. That's why you enjoy it so much. And according to this study, in reality, that is the least reason among some other reasons. Yeah, and yeah. the same with, oh, they're, they're really handsome. They're really, you know, they're bodybuilders. They're really good-looking guys. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. So that was the lowest scored. Um, the middle score was social interaction, acquisition of knowledge, um, ac acquisition of knowledge, yep, escape, drama, and aesthetics. Now, I, I, you'd have to go back to the article a little bit more about what, uh, what does that all mean? Um, but, uh, my guess is social interaction is it's, it's something you can talk about with your friends yeah. and you watch with a group of people. Mm -hmm. Acquisition of knowledge is that you learn something by watching it, um, which, you know, that's an interesting one to see that it would score so high that I would argue we don't always learn so much. I, I guess if you're interested in the history of wrestling, you learn because you watch it week to week, right? So it's all the WrestleNomics uh, listeners out there probably We know where the solar plexus is, right? That, that's right. There you go. It's teaching people anatomy. It's teaching anatomy people as, as discussed in the other article last week. Mm -hmm. Um, escape. I get that drama. Yeah. And aesthetics. Yeah. The pyro and all that. You could say there's something about the, the presentation, mm -hmm. but the top. The top reasons that people, the ones that scored the highest was novelty, physical skill of the athletes, and enjoyment of aggression. High spots. I think that, I think high spots is a combination of novelty and physical skill, right? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. And yeah. And, and aggression is, is mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's the payoff of a high spot. So less drama and, and selling, more high spots is what I'm getting out of this. Maybe. Maybe. But, or, or just, you know. Uh, the fact that push the ugly guy is what this says to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it doesn't matter how ugly you are. Or the idea that um, the idea of the the common everyman that we can all relate to is not as important. That the vicarious achievement where we say, oh, that could be me on the screen. That's mm -hmm. not a real key for finding who you're going to get behind. What is the key then? High spots. Aggression. Ruthless. I don't know. I, I just thought that was a really interesting one because I, I always find it intriguing when you could say you and I were debating what, why do we watch for wrestling? What do we like about wrestling? And I thought, Hey, here's a paper where they quantified a whole bunch of people. They had them rate different elements and this is what came out. Now I would argue there's probably clustering where you could probably say there's a group here that likes these elements. There's a group here that likes these elements. This is all self-reporting, right? I believe so. Mm. I mean, we can go deeper into it and, and you actually read the paper, not just the, the sure. uh, thing I happen to randomly pull out from it. But, um, you know, and, and I'm sure it'd be really curious if you looked at different styles of wrestling, if you're looking at deathmatch wrestling fans, what do they really enjoy? I would have a feeling enjoyment of aggression would rank very highly. Um, but if you're, you know, really into people that like, you know, really, really crazy storyline driven things, they might like something very, very different. So. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And then the final paper was in a university honors uh, paper by uh, uh, Janice M. Sycon. Wright um, State University. Wright State University, yeah, okay. yeah. And I I pulled out a lot of articles that day, right? So I pulled out probably 20 different articles and posted them. Mm -hmm. And no, not one of them do I ever say, oh, this is, this is the best one I've ever read. This is the worst one I've ever read. 
the same themes come up a lot. There's a lot of articles about theatricality and wrestling and treating wrestling through the lens of what a theater person sees. There's some about the language of wrestling or about kayfabe. There is some about gender roles and whatnot. Um, and so this one falls more into, uh, it was called WWE redefining working class womanhood through commodified, commodified feminism. Now, without taking a bunch of women's studies classes and knowing what they mean by commodified feminism, there's a lot of loaded words in the things that are in here where they're responding to other articles and then putting them against a certain lens. Uh, for whatever reason, this was the article Dave Meltzer chose to retweet, which is what caused a lot more people to kind of notice this. Oh, did that then happen? he put it into the daily update. So really, I think, yeah, so I think Janice might've had more people read her thesis here, huh. uh, in the past week than probably, uh, uh, all year long, uh, just cause I happen to randomly find it. And then hmm. other people kind of amplified it. Well, this paragraph that you've pulled out here, I think it is. was the final paragraph at the end. And I think um, I think it does a really good job of, of of summarizing her view on on the company. And I think a lot of people relate to it and other people just think it's complete baloney. So I'll be very curious uh, to hear what Brandon has to think. So should go we, ahead and read it. Should we read it. Uh, so this is again, this is the, the author is Janice M. Sycon. Sycon. Uh I've demonstrated that WWE is a dominant cultural force aimed at heterosexual working class white men. Therefore, everything is portrayed through their gaze and women are constructed to be I the ideal working class male fantasy. WWE encoded these gender expectations in their product by showing women to be hypersexual and open to male advances, frail and in need of protection, or self-sacrificing and willing to put themselves in harm's way to advance their man's ambitions. However, the discourse is constantly evolving as WWE's product is treated as one continuous story. Using not only the dialogue, but also the physical representations and the show structure, I was able to demonstrate how this story is representative of the society it was created in and how it adapts to that society's evolution. Now, women are treated more like independent athletes than as catalysts for men's achievements or fodder for the male gaze. But there is still much work to be done to give, women's, to give the women's division the same depth and respect as the men's division. Accounting for the overall superficial nature of the changes, comparing the women's division to earlier eras, and noting the politics of the McMahon family, I have proven that most of the changes are motivated by profit rather than social consciousness. So do you agree or disagree with her, <laughs> her paragraph? I agree 100%. That's great. <laughs> I thought it was a well, you know, at first I, I thought it was kind of one of these funny ones where you're using a lot of fancy words and you're talking about a wrestling and you're trying to basically say, here's all the books I read and here's how I'm relating wrestling to those books. And, you know, to a degree, I always would argue you can pretty much take any subject and you can start to say, well, here's how, how it's representational of society and go forth. But I think here she actually makes a pretty clear ABC connection where she basically and, and if you read the paper, she'll go through examples and basically say, here's what Miss Elizabeth used to be like. Here's what Lita used to be like. Here's what uh, Trish used to be like. And then here's what I see today with Bailey, you know, that sort of thing. And and. I, I think especially that last sentence where she says most of these changes are motivated by profit rather than social consciousness, I think is the most damning and most honest statement in here. Because I would be like, absolutely. And what's funny is what got people really worked up was people were t tweeting me back and they're just like, what do you mean you have proven? You've proven nothing. Nothing can be proven. <laughs> Everything's subjective. And they're just like, and I it was like, A, I know you didn't read the paper. I know yeah. you didn't even open it up. Yeah. B, 
this person did not write this to anger you. This person did not write this as an attack on your enjoyment on wrestling. Uh, and C, everyone's like, well, I think Vince McMahon is a lot more benevolent than he gets credit for. And I would just say, I, I, I think you're very right to pin WWE on the McMahons. And I don't think it's always fair to completely. I think it's very, very close. The WWE product of today is still a representation of the McMahon, Vince McMahon and his family. Mm -hmm. And I do think it, it's will, we should maybe hold the other people that are working in the company a little bit higher because they do have a whole creative staff that works on things. But generally, they're working to try to please Vince. Mm -hmm. Also, you could also make the argument, though, that wrestling as a whole has had a lot of this in its culture. And that's not an invention of Vince McMahon. There's lots of examples of this happening in WCW and other companies that Vince McMahon was not running at the time. Sure. But it is also a representation, like they say, of the society and of the people in power, working class, white men, white men specifically at the very top. Uh, so I, I'm not really surprised. I thought this was a really interesting piece. And that's page 28 of the article. So I always think that, you know, if you if you jump to the end of the book. And you read the last paragraph, you're not really going to understand the motivations of everything that's going into that until you sit there and read it all. And I'll admit, I have not sat and read her piece on commodified uh, feminism uh, this week. But I thought it was an interesting piece. And I thought that this one paragraph did a pretty good job of kind of explaining, in my mind, the dichotomy of the quote unquote women's revolution uh, and, and where were we before and the fact that we're at a better place today doesn't mean it's great it just means we're at a better place than maybe we were before yeah i don't know i we're not watching a ton of uh current w product but uh what, what i do see of it we're i think we're watching the pay-per-views at, at, at the least and we kind of hear about what's going on as mookie puts a snow globe up to his webcam um but i think it, as someone said once the w, w women's revolution is a revolution that's happening without a real understanding of its own need for revolution. Like they, I guess you do get the impression somewhat from some of their documentaries and some of their pieces that there's an acknowledgement that what was happening before wasn't as great or as, I don't know, as, as moral what? or as socially aware as what's happening now. But, um, I think still, still what's happening now are not like fully mature, uh, women's stories. Maybe this Becky Lynch thing is is a is a step in the right direction, and then the sort of momentum that she's got as a star. But you know, there's still a lot of stuff where you know, it's a lot of these storylines feel like storylines that are written by by men who uh, have a certain I don't know view on on women and how you know women don't accept their advances, and it's you know sort of like well, the, the beginning of this piece, yeah. The the other thing about it is that there isn't really been a change in management. And so it's such a weird thing to be like, yeah, can you believe that old regime used to write and produce television like this? And you want to be like, oh, Stephanie McMahon, weren't you in charge of that old regime? Weren't you also the head of creative for many years there? Weren't you also like in the exact same position? So this idea of like you're rebelling against the man and the man's like, listen, I hear what you're saying. I agree with you. And the best change is to leave me in charge. Yeah. And it, it's it's. It reminds me a little bit of that, like, totalitarian leader who's like, you know, you're absolutely right. The change needs to go. I need to get rid of all the people underneath me. They're making terrible decisions. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. How did we get here? Um, but it's it, it's an interesting piece. I like it. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward, for instance, when I get – I'm going to see Stardom when I'm in Japan. 
And so I'm really yeah. looking forward to see like a stardom show. And just just to, just to add to that, like to, that as, like. as we pile on the McMahons here, you're, you're you're saying earlier about how well, I mean Vince McMahon obviously did only came along, only came to power in, in professional wrestling in what the, the late '70s or something. And and uh, you know there was there were decades upon decades before where where women were not held in, in, in the greatest esteem or were not presented in a, in a way that was you know to show them in the best light to show what they were really capable of. Uh, but but in the meantime, in the last 30, 40 years, Vince McMahon has been the most powerful person in, in WWE. And I think when you have that much power in wrestling or in whatever area of life, you have a responsibility to, you know, use your power wisely and fairly and uh, include people who, who have been historically excluded and disadvantaged over time. And I think, I think we have a responsibility to break these bad cycles. Absolutely. So five good pieces, um, some of them really serious, some of them very lighthearted, some of them um, uh, interesting, but not conclusive. Uh, but yeah, those were five of the pieces I really uh, found that were really interesting. And I, I found a number of other intriguing things since then, but uh, nothing else that really jumped out at me that I, I would have to say, oh, my gosh, you guys have to sit and read this. Um, a lot of really good long theses, you know, um, uh, one of somebody even listens to the show, uh, Dr. Ben, uh, I'm trying to remember his last name. Is it Litherford or Litherfield? Uh, he's, he's written a lot of great stuff about the history of British wrestling and, uh, very long, long pieces on that, uh, including, you know, editing books and, and, uh, a lot of other things. And I, I really appreciate that, that he was even saying, yeah, he agrees that there's, a, that we're at a place where, we could see more scholarship. And like I say, I would love to see more scholarship from the, um, going back to like economic pieces more than even just the sociological studies about, uh, wrestling, but, uh, more about, uh, yeah, Ben Litherland, Litherland is his name. Have, have you um, listened to the, uh, the Eric Bischoff Ted talk? I have not listened to the Eric. Bischoff I've, I've been told to listen to it. Really? And, uh, yeah. I told, I'm told it's good. Maybe we'll have to to put that on our homework list for next week. I think you're, it's on your homework list. I cannot bring myself to listen to an narrative. Okay, that, that was my talk. reaction, but okay, I'm, I'm told it's good. Yeah. We'll, 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 I'll check it out. Okay, I, I would appreciate that. I did find one all about. It was um, a very interesting article about El Santo versus the zombies, and it was basically this whole like critical piece arguing that the zombies represented the like everyday Mexican laborers. And and Santo and it was really interesting. So, <laughs> so what like, does that mean? Santo represents. What does Santo represent then? If, if, if the zombies are the everyday laborers, uh, the saint. Okay, I'm not sure. Maybe that was the Mexican state or something. I see. I'm not sure. Mm. Um, the only other things uh, there was a piece in the Australian, uh, which is a online uh, newspaper. Or not online newspaper, a, a, a big newspaper, the Australian, uh, dot com dot au, all about Mr. A, Mr. Aaron DeSosa. And, um, he was an Australian law graduate. And basically, he's the guy who's taking the, um, credit for convincing Peter Thiel to fund Hulk Hogan's lawsuit. And it's basically this behind the scenes piece trying to explain, like, how they wanted to get at Gawker. And so they looked for the right candidate and they decided on Hogan. And then they knew it would cost him like 10 years and it would, or 10 million dollars and would probably take three to five years to do. But that was how much it was worth. And it tells you a lot about Thiel's vision that this is a form of, uh, philanthropy for him to do this. And so it's, it's one of my greatest philanthropic endeavors, he says at one mm. point. 
Uh, so it's it's an interesting piece um, to read. Uh, I don't really know if it's it's something you know it's a little one sided on my in my opinion where it's very big on you know kind of saying how creative and amazing this guy must be and then some other people are like yeah he's kind of a jerk and then other people are like yeah no he's fine and and just be like well you couldn't get anyone else to seem to talk to you about this and you're just so excited about getting the scoop of who the mysterious mr a was because we knew that there was a mr a who was involved whose idea it was to do this but no one had ever said who exactly that was so it's you know pulling back the curtain uh so uh shout out to to our buddy kevin for sending us that uh, kind of an interesting piece it's linked in the notes it was not this. nick denton himself who, who sent it to us it was not him himself no no uh it, unfortunately not and then the very last thing was um i was intrigued by the forbes piece which was talking about uh, the highest paid stars of 2018 and how much are they supposedly making on youtube and, you know, it, it goes through and saying, oh, well, you have, you know, Logan Paul and Logan Paul makes uh, $14.5 million and Pew Pew Die or Pew Die Pew uh, dies like gets 15 and a half. And, and then you go all the way down to, you know, uh, number Dude Perfect getting 20 million and Jake Paul getting 21 and a half and then Ryan's Toy Review getting $22 million. Uh, and so. What I did is I just looked up how many followers each of them had, because that was the, the number Forbes seemed to be focusing on was number of followers and um, put that into a little graph. And then I kind of Google, you know, figured out how much, well, WWE has 37.3 million followers on their YouTube channel. Uh, how many, how much would that be worth? And so I came up with a number between maybe 19 and $21 million for the YouTube value. Now, I have no idea if that's the right number. I'm just extrapolating off Forbes formula that they kind of implied there. And that doesn't look at views. That doesn't look at all sorts of other factors that go in. But um, I, I don't think that's a ridiculous number for, for their YouTube revenue. If I said they make about $20 million a year on YouTube revenue, that, that would probably be in line with what I think that is a legitimate number. Yeah. Especially when you consider you have to discount their Indian viewers probably a lot. Yeah. I mean, when we were when we used to get digital media broken out as a segment... And I think most of that money was YouTube money uh, over. I'm sure we could look it up, but over a year, 20 million sounds about right. Yeah. And and now, of course, they have the Facebook money for Mixed Match Challenge and they have, you know, special Instagram money that comes in. They have Instagram money. money. Yeah, they did that one time or I know they did Snapchat special money one time hmm. uh, because they had like a new day filter you could buy. Stuff so like so are we talking about Instagram or Snapchat? Do you know? The well, I, I was saying. I realized I meant Snapchat, but I was saying I think Instagram also, they figured out some ways to get some money there. Snapchat sure. is yellow. Yeah. <laughs> Instagram is, I don't know, purple or something. How, how is it that you're so into Instagram and yet Fortnite eludes you? I don't I don't. I don't really play video games. I haven't played video games in a long time. I mean, I, I used to play NHL, and uh, but I, didn't, I haven't owned a, a video game system of my own since I've been an emancipated adult. An emancipated adult, he says. Wow, that's quite the phrase. Um, so uh, I think that was it for my my things I wanted to talk about this week was the George talk, the board of directors, guys, they added the scholarly wrap up, the Vince McMahon sells some stock trademarks and a YouTube and review the NXT show. So just a couple things on my mind. But uh, again, you've been listening to WrestleNomics Radio. Brandon, uh, where can the people see you before the end of the year? 
Um, am I wrestling any any more the rest of this year? Uh, you you can probably see me appearing in Tonic Tonawana Court sometime next year. Uh, <laughs> Got a speeding ticket. <laughs> Brandon is looking for a lawyer, some lawyerly advice on the cheap on how we should fight a speeding ticket in New York State. So if you're you're an expert on New York State speeding tickets, please contact at Brandon Thurston on Twitter and let him know what he should do right because he's he's nervous now. Got busted for going three thousand miles in a twelve. My first ever moving violation, apparently. And I'll be I'll be wrestling Daniel Garcia one on one in January for Empire State Wrestling. Um, we did we did a grapplers video. Have you seen this? No, I haven't yet. Well, you've been neglecting to follow grapplers on his social media. That's unfortunate. We did it. We did. Well, a... I, I follow your social media. Have you retweeted it? Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, that there's a, there's a story about uh, what we were talking about earlier in this this, this cut match and everything. And, uh, I, I'm on, I'm on Twitter at Brandon Thurston, but wrestling Twitter is basically dead and long live wrestling Instagram. You can follow me on Instagram at farmer underscore Thurston, which, which Mookie is, is gradually learning how to use. Um, what Instagram? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to Instagram some stuff today because, um, we're, we're in the process of cleaning my house extensively and it's been a most overwhelming. Uh, and so it involves me moving a lot of boxes of stuff so that we can set up this entertainment center in my basement. I deconstructed a whole entertainment center. I got rid of the last CRT TV in my house this week. Is that like rear projection? No, it was What's just CRT? like a, an old Cathay Ray tube. I saw TV. you post that on, on Facebook. But it was like a 38-inch TV. TV, so it weighed a tube quite TV. a lot. A tube TV. Yeah, a giant okay. old tube TV. Okay. Um, got rid of one of those. I, I got rid of um, all the paint and antifreeze and gasoline from my garage that's been sitting around we went to one of those uh hazardous waste disposal centers to finally get rid of all this old gasoline that had been sitting in my garage for years that you know was too stagnant to use anymore but then you don't know what to how to get rid of it then uh and so we did that and then but i just i've, I've been uncovering all this kind of crazy stuff from my last 12 years here in minnesota so all my nintendo stuff <laughs> so you know my maniac mansion posters and all that stuff but then i find like you know weird calendars and, and just, just all sorts of, I found my, um, you know, we were talking earlier about FSA and HSA. I found my like flexible spending account card today, uh, that had been sent to me on December 13th, 2017. So I have all of like, uh, two weeks here to try and spend a little bit more. You're going to, you're going to have to cure something that's wrong with you. Well, there's plenty wrong with me. Maybe I'll, I'll use it for some vision problems. You know, I was, I was thinking it's, it, I've been studying WrestleNomics. When did I start doing all this stuff? Early 2015. So that's 2015, 16, 17. Uh, this year is almost over. I've almost completed my four-year degree, I think, in WrestleNomics. And I'm wow. hoping to get the um, – would this be a Bachelor of Science? What would this be? A Master's degree? Because I've already got a degree. Am I in a Master's program here? PhD what, program? What degree do we do we give out here? A, um, uh, a judicious know. modicum? Yeah, I need to know so I can put it on my LinkedIn. <laughs> Give you a, uh, 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 I always think bachelors of science is good because then you could say you have a BS in WrestleNomics. Yeah. And I think that's the most accurate <laughs> way of describing what it is that we do. And I also don't think that there's anything more like humbling than when you sit there and read all these, uh, scholarly papers about wrestling and you realize that that's where you'd have to graduate to for the next level. And just that your head starts to hurt when you think about like the hours that would you have to pour into something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'll, I'll have to send you some of my old philosophy papers and see if you can decode them. 
No, I can't. I can't. I don't like to read. I don't. Reading's not my thing. Okay. Uh, I mean, I like reading. I just don't like reading long papers. Hmm. But just we'll tweets, make it work. tweet, tweets. Well, you know, hundred and whatever, two hundred eighty characters at a time. Tweet. Twitter is alive and well and doing doing pretty great. So I'm pretty happy there. Uh, you can catch me on Twitter at Mokigama, and uh, I will. We'll be back next week to talk. Uh, whatever the news is of this week, I'm hoping we'll have some UK news soon. I'm hoping we'll have something else that'll be interesting to talk about. Otherwise, uh, our self-imposed uh, Patreon exile might might have to continue indefinitely in case maybe there'll never be news again, for all we know. That'll be fine, too. It's okay for there not to be news. That is okay. We have more papers to read and write. Yeah, talk, but we, got, we got good feedback. A lot of people told us. They wanted us to sit and read papers. Yeah, they're, they're like interested in that. people saying they, that. They self-report that they're interested in that. Yeah. And I, I quickly self-assigned that to Brandon huh? to do. I put that on my, my mental note, note of, of things to do. I was busy yeah. this week, but maybe maybe next week we're going to do Eric Bischoff, I think, and maybe we'll do the rest of that. What, what if every week you had a grappler student? You and a grappler student were to discuss a paper and make it homework for that grappler student. And their, their reward is they get to come on a podcast. An internationally oh, recognized reward. podcast. What a reward. Uh, first, I would have to actually get them to read it. I believe that would be a challenge. As, as you know, and I, I, I'm, I'm very proud of all, all the students, all the wrestlers there, but like, to get them to read like what, that 28-page paper? Academic paper? On feminism. On feminism. They should read make it, it. but Make it happen. Yeah. I love this idea. Maybe we should start with, uh, maybe we'll start with ES, or uh, Grappler's uh, leadership and just work our way down. So we'll start with the owners, and we'll go to the uh, top trainers, and we'll go down all the way to the students. The rookies will have to do it last. <laughs> WrestleNomics at gmail.com. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.